Hello, and welcome to The Gardens, located in sunny The Gardens is one of the largest combined zoological habitat and theme parks in the world. With over 72 thrilling attractions and nearly 11,000 animals in our care, we know that every member of your family will find something incredible each time you visit. But that's just the start of your adventure. To really see what the park has to offer, I'll turn you over to our top two guides. Take it away, boys! Welcome to ThoughtSpeak, Chronicles episode number one, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of the first spinoff title in the 1996 book series, Animorphs. My name is Coleman. And my name is Mitchell, the funny one. And for the first time in ThoughtSpeak history, we have a third person amongst us. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm Nate. Um, I'm a kind of a sci-fi fan and Mitchin Coleman thought it'd be great for me to be included on this as my first Animorphs book. He's a Pisces and he enjoys long walks on the beach. I'm a Scorpio. (laughs) We thought it appropriate to bring on a third person for one of the biggest books in the series. Huge book. And a big factor in that, or definitely a reason he's here, which we mentioned on the last episode. Uh, Nate, how many, how many Animorphs books you've read besides this one? Zero. What? I'm not surprised. There are actually people out there who did not read this book series when it was uh, in its heyday. At the height of its popularity, when we were all in about 6th, uh, 7th, 8th grade, right around that time. Yep. I don't know how you missed the bandwagon. <laughs> we were even friends then. I know. I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> At the height of Kay Applegate's overthrow of our government, he missed out. And uh, that's a shame. But we're here to rectify that tonight, which we've already started with him reading this book. Which is a pretty random book to jump in on, but we thought that would be part of the fun. So let's get to know Nate. Who is Nate? What makes him think and breathe? Probably his brain and lungs. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you one thing. Uh, Nate is actually my oldest friend because I I met him back in sixth grade. Nate, let's let's go with a couple questions here. Let's just, just to get to know who Nate is, uh, what, what he's doing here, why we wanted him. Oh, wait, can I tell you one thing that will that I think will perfectly sum him up? Before we started recording, he asked me if it would be all right if he made a Futurama reference. <laughs> and I was like, bro, that's our entire show. It was a loose reference. <laughs> it's really just, well, do you want to make the reference right now? No, 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 no. Let, let it, it come up naturally. It'll, it'll be beautiful. It's going to be awkward. I think this is the most important question to ask somebody on an Animorphs podcast specifically. Favorite alcoholic beverage? Oh, there are so many. Uh, lately, my wife and I have been getting into some of the craft beers, but um, I really like rum, particularly Kilo Kai. A little that. Some of that with uh, Diet Coke is probably probably a good go-to for me. That yeah. was my college drink, as Coleman should know. Oh, I know. Uh, Mitch, you introduced me to Kilo Kai. I know. It's such a good drink. It spreads. Do you drink? Is there any? Uh, is there any straight up liquor that you drink neat? Um, every now and then I'll do some scotch or whiskey, but mm-hmm. I'm certainly not a, a connoisseur in those, in that realm. What does this have to do with animorphs? <laughs> this is the most important animorphs question. I'm telling you, <laughs> uh, fans need to know. Uh, what about you, Mitch? Do you have anything to ask him that you think is relevant to the podcast? Not particularly. I, I mean, the reason I picked Nate as our. Uh guest co-host is that the right title that you deem guest host he is a guest visiting host (laughs) (laughs) so guest co-host is not 
No, that implies a number of things that our listeners are, they're not ready to commit to a guest co-host. He's a guest and he is co-hosting the show. That implies way too much. I can uh, just be a normal guest. All right, so the reason I asked Nate to come on the show, other than the fact that he had never read any Animorphs books, was because I knew he had similar tastes to myself, for sure, and probably you in the long run. I mean, we all enjoy Doctor Who and... You know our various sci-fi series, and uh, it, it's it's just a good fit, I think. I think so, for someone to be able to get into the series, which was obviously written, uh, at least from Scholastic's perspective, for a middle school audience, from the author's perspective, is for like you know, war-ravaged thirty-year-olds. But I think the most important thing to get into the series is. To be into sci-fi in general and, and the ability to recognize universes created from scratch, it's got a lot of tropes of you know UFOs and aliens and all that. But um, just like Doctor Who and you know Battlestar Galactica or whatever, you got to be able to buy into it a certain bit. And I I think Nate probably is okay with that from what I know of him. Uh, yeah, certainly I've uh, been able to buy into it a bit. Um, starting out the book was was kind of tough for me. Uh, the last book I read was. Um, it was the most recent book in the Song of Ice and Fire f- series, so... Um, Game of d- Bones. Definitely uh, <laughs> definitely a little bit of a different writing style. Uh, Martin is pretty... On the higher end of my reading level, I guess, and this is um, a much easier read, so it was kind of an adjustment for me. Wow, you've been on the podcast for seven minutes, and you just called the author simple-minded in her <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> She's no George R. R. Martin, is basically what you said. He just took off his glove and slapped <laughs> K. Applegates in the face. <laughs> that said, I still did enjoy that. I uh, I still did enjoy reading it, and um, I think it sets up a good story. I I don't know where it goes, obviously, but well, and I, I was gonna say you went into this cold. And uh, not knowing a thing about what the story was about, right? True. You, you just, didn't Wikipedia this or anything. Just did morphing. You? That's all. <laughs> just morphing is all he knew. Um, and and if you read the back of the book, it doesn't really tell you a whole heck of a lot. Which of, I did not about. Do. Oh, <laughs> and he didn't even read it. So he went in truly, really cool. I mean, he didn't even freaking look at the uh, inside uh, image art, which we should probably talk about because it's pretty cool. Okay. Well, let me ask some simple questions about the main book series and see if you what answers you have for them like um me no 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 not you you're, <laughs> shut up bitch <laughs> i want i want to play too he was so excited <laughs> so okay nate so this is easy one to start out with who do you believe are the main antagonists of the main series oh it's like a um, quiz show tobias i feel like that well, was did you say antagonist antagonist and the bad guys who are oh, the bad guys oh. of the, of the... I got excited. Um, <laughs> Tobias is a bad guy. <laughs> I want to read that book. <laughs> so do I. Um, I would say the Yerks. I mean, they seem to be ding, the ding, ding, ding. ultimate bad guy, and they um, they don't have any. They're kind of like the Daleks, where there there really aren't any redeeming qualities of this race. Until at least the episode where they do their redeeming qualities. <laughs> Somebody hasn't read book nineteen yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me. <laughs> Oh, really? So, okay, yeah, yeah, you completely got that right. Uh, Other acceptable answers would have been the Limus 
and uh, the uh, Andalites <laughs> themselves. But <laughs> uh, no, the most right of right answers he could have given was Visor Three. You probably didn't even well, you wouldn't Visor Seventy Sub Visor Seven Twenty Eight. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but Visor Three in the very end. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Um, he's the he's essentially the main big bad of the series. Anyway, okay. So another question. Okay, so based on the end of this book and various things, who are the heroes of the main series? The kids that uh, that Elfingor meets shortly before he dies. Yeah, and just randomly, without looking it up, can you name any of their names? Oh, <laughs> I I told him all the kids' names before we hit record. Well, so, I, I... <laughs> so this is even more of a test because I remember Tobias. Yeah, and well, yeah, I think the, there was a the Jake. Game. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, do you do you want to look at the illustration? That's that's all I got. Tobias and Jake. Okay, not bad. Those are important ones from what I've seen of the series. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other characters are never never mentioned. I mean, Jake's not even mentioned in this. The only animorph that's mentioned by name is Tobias. I thought he mentions a few of their names at the end. Maybe not. Um, I don't believe so. You know, I don't think he does because he realizes that Tobias is his son and that seems to be his focus which fair enough yeah right okay one more question this one's this one's not really hard but it could be interesting based on this book alone where would you say that the majority of the main series takes place like traveling around on earth on some planet where would you just guess that the main um, series takes place? based on the end of this book i i got the impression that it takes place largely on earth um and to reinforce that a little bit, I mean, just the little inklings that I had exposure to of um, of animorphs in the past, they all all the covers seem to be like very Earth-like environments, like the little bit you can see behind the the morphing image. That's ba- that's basically what I'm basing it on. Well, you're bringing more knowledge to this than I thought, so yes. you cheated basically. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, your your question about the setting was kind of easy. I thought you were going to ask like what he thought the the series was about. Vague questions get vague answers. Okay, Nate, explain <laughs> Marco's relationship with his mother in context to the Lyrons. Go. Um, it's really complex and he's right. Nine. He knows. I'm going to bust out the hard trivia. I'll be there. Give this uh, man an Animorphs medal. Okay, okay. So, Mitch, you have your own little test, right? You have your own little uh, something you wanna you wanna bring to the table with concerning Nate. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I I thought we'd do it during the show, but we could do it right now. We are on the show right now, Mitch. No, I mean during the <laughs> review as it popped up. But you know what? Fine, we'll do it now. Yeah. I just wanted to show you um some some official artwork of the uh, aliens that are in the the book series, the Horkbajir and the Taxons. Okay, I'm actually really excited because I have this picture in my mind and i haven't looked at anything online for these other races i'm really curious to see what the official artwork okay okay Um, don't show him yet mitch (laughs) he was so close do not show him now right now the fun of this will be we want to know what you're picturing in your head like first describe in your mind's eye describe a hork bajir okay so um this is gonna sound kind of weird but stick with me here so you know the guys that are that come into the pyramid in the fifth element, the guys from space that have yes. the fifth element or the fifth element and everything. Hundred percent. So yes. I'm imagining those guys, but very lean and have blades pretty much everywhere. 
Is that remotely close? That is not bad. I didn't even think of that. That's a good... I'm not too... Uh, my mind's not too fresh on the old fifth element. Well, they have like all there. this bulky armor or stuff, but as far as like their heads and stuff, that's not a bad comparison. To your point about their heads, um, that's what I was really drawing from, from the fifth element creatures. Ah, so okay. do you want me to show them the picture? Yeah, show them a Horkbajir. This is uh, from the cover of book... 34, The Prophecy. So that's just the oh, uh, cover image. And then if you look on the inside, it shows them in much, much more detail. Okay, so that's a lot more like reptilian dinosaur-esque than I thought it would be. I think that turns out to be the case with uh, most people. It, it was certainly mine. I thought they looked a lot more reptilian than I was picturing in my See, mind. I I'm, I've, haven't heard anybody else with this opinion, but for some reason reading this um, in middle school and just having a picture in my head, I always pictured them very apish. Like, not full-on, like, gross. I was going to say, I also, I think I remember being younger and imagining them being kind of furry. <laughs> yeah, well, not, no, 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 not fury, furry. Like, I, I don't, I picture them completely hairless, but, but just kind of, like, muscly and, like, longer arms and, like, roundish heads. Like, I, I never took into account the whole snake head thing. And, um, I don't know, I just saw them more as, like, shock troopers. Like, like, thin versions of of the Gamorians from Return of the Jedi who run Jabba's Palace. I always pictured that with blades all over them. Okay. Again, that reference goes over my head, but Nate shrugged like, oh, yeah, I got that. <laughs> I'm not I'm not an expert in the Star Wars races, but uh, yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. Well, let's all take a break and play some Knights of the Old Republic <laughs> oh, on Xbox One. And <laughs> no, no, we've, we've got to show Nate the picture of the Taxon. Okay, okay, okay. So, Nate, now, from what you have heard... Describe to us a taxon. So, um, these I don't really have anything to compare to, so I'm going to try to describe them, and I'm not great at describing things, so bear with me. Um, they are black. I'm imagining them being about, um, I don't know, probably 8 to 10 feet long, with kind of centipede-esque. They've got various segments on their bodies. Um, they've got nasty little eyes on one side with big giant red mouth things that are disgusting um yeah Is so multiple it? multiple mouths uh nope just one big gross mouth okay well maybe like a mouth within a mouth <laughs> yeah okay <fair laughs> like enough. some sort of like sea creature thing yeah like uh okay show them the picture yeah um, is this also more reptilian than I'm expecting? No. So this is from book 43, The Test. And um, I don't know if I should show him the cover. Why? Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Spoilers. So if this were black. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's got like lobster hands. It's funny that you, well, open it up and you can see okay, Yeah, fair enough. So I imagine them being black, like entirely sleek black. Mm -hmm. um, a little closer to the ground. Um, the front of the creature, um, so I, I imagine that the eyes were, like, recessed into its head. Yeah. And then, uh, the mouth was part of that. So, in my, uh, in my vision, the body was one long segment, segment with little legs, and then the head was just a slightly altered segment. See, it sounds like you're describing, like, some kind of Lovecraftian horror, uh, <laughs> which would be amazing. Um, that, that's, but you're still pretty close, I mean you know, basic elements are there. Um, I always pictured, and is somewhat um, 
you know, close to the books. But I always pictured if if you were to do a live action version of a taxon, like the skin, uh, the thickness of it, how it looked, and everything. I, I always saw it as like like a postule or like a pus filled like a uh, bump on your arm, like the consistency of that. But that's like their entire body. So like if you even pinprick them, like the whole taxon would explode and just like goop. Because um, that's how they describe them whenever they fight them. <laughs> yeah. I think I might be the only person who just imagines exactly that image. Yeah. Were well, you, Were you spoiled by the book art? <laughs> me and... No, that's like the first instance of uh, Texans showing up in the book art, I think. Huh? Well, me and Nate, you know, we're just creative thinkers, man. We're outside the box. You just you just eat whatever Scholastic shoves down your throat. <laughs> yeah, Mitch. I'm so accepting of the... Uh... Uh, official fan art or, or official art yeah well i never like i think they could have at least done something different with the lobster claws because she describes in the book as having little claws and they made them like flat out crab claws in the yeah. picture i was expecting more like little needle type claws yeah, yeah that's well they say cones they say cones their feet are little cones yeah, yeah which they do. i thought yeah. they do not look like cones i was expecting little ice cream cones it's a recurring joke for us that the uh, marketing team for this book series hasn't actually read the books. Yeah. They're kind of so, guessing. <laughs> so they sure. just draw whatever they feel like. Sounds like a pretty sweet job. <laughs> um, okay, well, Mitch, unless unless you have some hidden sleeve agenda uh, and you want to ask Nate some crazy question on the air where he can't back out of it, um, we can move forward. No, let's uh, let's get into it. I am super excited to talk about the Andalite Chronicles. Fun fact, I almost considered requesting that this book, since it is a prequel, be our first ever episode of ThoughtSpeak, but I refrained. Okay, well let's see if uh, mine and Nate's enthusiasm matches yours. We'll see. On this episode of ThoughtSpeak. (laughs) 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 Alright, yeah, let's, let's move into our book discussion. This section of the park houses one of the most extensive research libraries devoted to animal biology on the West Coast. Your guides will provide a thorough summary of any book that might catch your eye. Careful though, once you get them started, they'll never want to stop. Tonight, we're talking about the first book in the Chronicles series, spin-off books of the Animorphs book series, uh, The Andalite Chronicles. Big book, big, big different take on the series that came out of nowhere i guess once the series started getting really popular they let her write one of these things and uh here we are so do you want to you want to start talking about the cover and what that might entail yeah i don't know this was uh besides the artwork for axe back on book eight i want to say back on the alien mm-hmm. um this is the uh second official andalite artwork that we've ever seen so it's uh pretty exciting <laughs> we can see that they've uh, retconned the weird googly stock eyes that they used to have. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're more like sleek and cool looking. And uh, I don't know, it's it's a lovely little cover here that folds open and there's lots of colored illustrations. And boy, was I pleased seeing that as a kid. Yeah. Let's, let's talk to Nate real quick. In general, what do you think of just the physiology of the Andalite design? Oh, yeah, because that, that, that alien species here, this centaur design, is, you know, really 
prevalent throughout the entire series, not just this book, but throughout the rest of the series. One of the main characters in the Teenager Kids is one of these aliens. So he's walking around with them throughout the entire series. To answer your question, I, uh, it took me, it took, I, it was hard to <laughs> accept it at first. Um, it's like in the back of your mind, right? Like, oh yeah, this guy's a freaking centaur. Yeah, basically. And, um, I mean, as the story progressed, it, it just kind of, it was just a piece of knowledge that I had and I was able to get past, like, that I thought it was kind of a weird choice for an alien species. Um, yeah, you don't, you tend not to think about it much unless he specifically mentions his hooves or his tail yeah. or his stock eyes. Um, I did think it was interesting that they eat with their feet. Um, that is a huge, heavily guarded secret that we did not discover until, what, book book eight, right? <laughs> Or, no, they go into a little bit in book seven, don't they? Where they're asking him questions and stuff? Mm, no, Maybe. I think that that was the one where they gave him the cop-out answer. Yeah, but they, that's when they start discussing it. Kind yeah, of. but that, like it built up to it, and we didn't find out until book eight. Yeah. <laughs> so, Real exciting. As far as this picture goes, I, I, never, I never like how much they make the tail curved. Like, the way they slice and the way they fight with it, like, that thing would hook onto everything. The way they yeah, exactly. It. That that does look like a really weird design for a blade. I imagine it more like a blade, like a like a sword blade kind of. Not like this weird. It looks like a talon, really. Maybe maybe yeah. they can relax it and they just don't discuss it. Just relax <laughs> the talon so it doesn't get caught on stuff. Oh, it like Re- retracts. Relax like the a... talon. Awesome well, band oh, name. Yeah, I guess it could work kind of like a cat claw. Maybe I don't know. I was thinking like it just kind of can go limp. That would be kind of amazing if it could uh, shoot out whenever they needed it. Except I think the fact that. It's always there is kind of important because every time anyone ever sees an Andalite for the first time, like the humans, they're always like, oh, wow, he'd almost be like this cute little alien if he didn't have this humongous blade on his tail. They always they always describe him as a deer crossed with a uh, scorpion. Which I think the picture goes more horse. I think they I think all the depictions don't do enough deer. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Deer is kind of a weird suggestion for that. You yeah, know, I, he... I definitely thought horse when I was reading this. Um, although I... Mitch lent me the book, and um, I definitely saw the cover, so I, that could have affected it. Altered my yeah. Exactly. You ever you ever hold the book up and and uh, cover the back end of Elfingor, so it just looks like he's got the the two little dangly uh, gangly How does front he stand? legs. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> looks he's like more he's like a like tap a, dancer. Uh, oh, what's it called? Uh, um, a a sat- satire? Yeah, like in uh, Chronicles of Narnia and stuff. They have. The one they meet right at the beginning. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sir Tumnus. A, yeah. No, I'm thinking of that is a satire. I'm right? thinking of uh, something else. <laughs> Fair enough. Chronicle. Oh, you said Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm drunk. I can't remember the name. <laughs> We've done that episode, Nate. We don't need I... another one. <laughs> and then I was thinking Golden Compass, and I I don't know. You should be ashamed of yourself for that. I am. Um... Oh. <laughs> so this does have a pretty intricate cover, and as we mentioned in the last episode. Man, they, they really marketed the shit out of this book. I mean, they really had promos in the back of, like, three books leading up to it. I'm sure they had pamphlets and flyers and everything else. They were in such a rush to get this book out faster, they actually had her split it into three separate stories. You noticed how the book was split into parts one, two, and three? Mm-hmm. Those were initially released as little separate mini-books so that they could get them out the door faster. I've seen those. When looking for the, you know, me and Mitch basically collected this entire series now. Uh, in in paperback form, uh, I saw at least two of the split up uh, Andalite Chronicles books. I did too, and you know what? I kind of wanted to buy them. Really, I haven't, but 
I'm going to buy every single cover art version of Mega Morphs number two. It's just different colors, but I still want to collect them all since that's my favorite, you know, Mega Morphs book. But anyway, so getting into the book proper, you know, the words and story and such, this one starts pretty strong, especially if you are a fan of the main series. But since we have a non-fan on the show, I definitely want to hear from him first. How does this book start out, Nate? And what are your initial thoughts jumping into it? Just recap the beginning part of the story. Yeah, what, how, how does it start? So, the story starts out with the prologue, in which um, Elfengor has crashed on Earth. Uh, I believe he's at a construction site. Uh-huh. And um, <clears throat> he believes he's about to die, so he's recording all of his memories into his... Uh, I think he was in a fighter. His fighters, or his ship's computer. Mm-hmm. Um, in hopes that either other Andalites or humans or someone will find... Uh, this recording to share the knowledge of everything that's happened. Um, he shares that he's shared how to morph with five teenage humans. Yeah, he's uh, he's sitting up in his cockpit with his Talkboy tape recorder just uh, <laughs> going off on, on everything he's been through. He's talking about his journey thus far. And he also mentions that he's looking for, he's specifically there on Earth to look for the Time Matrix. Yes, and this recording of his, it's uh, it's become kind of a big deal in the uh, Animorphs fandom because every blog out there is called the Herak Delest, which is what this recording is to an, uh, an Andalite. It's their last memoir of what they did with their lives, what mistakes they made, like who they really are. It's something they send off to their families or just for the general Andalite population to um, see what they've done and who they really are and, and what legend will carry on through the ages so and so that ka applegate could write a book about it yeah (laughs) convenient (laughs) exposition that's all this book is but it's much needed the interesting thing about this nate is the fact that yes this prologue is basically moments into the first book like the first book starts these kids are in a mall they're like hey let's take the dangerous route home through this construction site they see this ufo land and as it lands is this scene taking place where he's inside the fighter and he's giving this, you know, last moments talk. Okay. And actually, as I was reading the prologue, I, I felt like that's like, this was another, another view of, of part of the story that was already told. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I definitely got that feel as I was reading it. Yeah. Which I think is, because that's exactly what they were going for. Which that's pretty intricate for a uh, series like that. Like we've said, you know, Scholastic, the publisher, thought they were getting a young adult series, but the authors really tried to, you know, write just a good sci-fi series. And I, there's some parts that, um, you know, blew over our heads as middle schoolers that uh, now we can appreciate a lot more. I'd say so. Moving on from the prologue, which just sets up, you know, this story and giving it a reason for why it should be told, uh, we jump straight into 21 years before the start of the Animorph series uh, with Elfangor not being a prince or a legend or any of this. Uh, he's just a kid in training to possibly be a soldier. Right, yeah. The uh, story starts out with uh, <clears throat> little uh, Elfie little <laughs> uh, practicing his tail fighting with his, uh, his, his commander, his teacher, old Sofor, Sofor in their uh, big old dome ship. And uh, I guess he kind of sucks at it because he, you know, loses. 
all the time. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the uh, he's the flawed, you know, never gonna make it protagonist. Well, at this point, he's he's still thinking with his with his head. He needs to start thinking with his heart. <laughs> That's the real journey of this book. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, yeah. As soon as old Sofor shuffles out of the scene, we get another character shoehorned in, which turns out to be Arboron, another supporting character. That's going to be pretty important throughout the rest of the book. And I think we're still, still somewhat skipping ahead into this opening because uh, the actual first chapter of this book is basically young Elfangor uh, explaining the universe. It's here is this, I'm part of this Andalite race uh, who, you know, is the heroes and the Yurks are the enemy and he's describing hork and all these things. And I actually have my first and most important notes right here on the first page with how he says, uh, if you've been reading the series, you know, about morphine technology and turning into animals. I mean, that's what the entire series is about. And uh, it says in this first part that the morphine technology is top secret within the andalite race did you pick up on that mitch no <laughs> i mean yeah i i knew the andalites didn't just dole it out to every andalite see for i when reading this original series um i actually thought you know most andalites could probably morph but really it's like uh, i'm sure the yurks know about it obviously but uh i didn't realize that it was you know kind of just the warrior class. They're the only ones who may even know about this technology. I, uh, reading this, I was also under the impression that most or all Andalites could morph, so I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm not. Please keep those <laughs> comments to yourself in the future. I just, I, I had never thought about that way. So I'm sure the normal Andalite population is aware of morphing, because you can't keep something like that secret, but, uh, but they do treat it as a, more of a specialty weapon than I ever gave it credit. Do you feel like that opening segment brought you up to speed on the series as a whole? Um, or, or at least gave you enough base information? Definitely some key pieces. Um, it did a good job setting things up, and then things that weren't explained there um, or were only light, lightly touched on there were reiterated or explained later. So. Oh, cool. As long as you weren't left in the dark. No, I I felt fine going through it. What are we, in space or something? What the hell is this book series? <laughs> <laughs> Where is this happening? What? What is this? So, what was was that as far back as you needed to jump there? Are you talking to me? You gotta yeah. specify names here, bro. We got three people on the show now. Coco! <laughs> that you? Don't call me on that on the show. Um, <laughs> just, just at night. Yes, that's fine. That's all I wanted to go back to was the fact that uh, morphine technology is definitely explained from the point uh, from a different perspective. And that right. that intrigued me. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's 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 an in depth look at something that we haven't had that much uh, time with, I guess. Can we can we discuss the morphing, real quick, or should? Yeah. Okay. Um, I thought it was a little when they were explaining the two hour limit, mm-hmm. and maybe this would be better placed later when uh, uh, Arbron gets stuck as a Texan. But when Elfingor was explaining the two hour limit, I felt like that's kind of arbitrary. Um, like, it just, it seems like a two-hour limit, hard cut off, you're stuck forever. Well, why is it two hours? What, what is important about that two-hour mark that makes it only two hours? Can, can some Andalites, are they more resistant to being stuck forever so they can go for two and a half hours? That is (laughs) a very interesting point and something we've talked about a couple times now 
that's something the entire fandom talks about since the books kind of uh, screw with the continuity on that a little and bit. And what we've <laughs> what we've come up with our thought speak version of how the morphing technology works is yes, there is a two hour limit, but once you hit um, you know two oh one, you can still morph back. It's just like morphing through concrete, like okay. drying concrete. It's incredibly, incredibly hard. But you could suppose, with enough willpower, you could destroy that two-hour limit. At at one point in the series, there were two or three characters who were trying to morph back in time from uh, wolves. And they went like seven minutes over, and they were able to do it very slowly, but... Okay. They made it work. Like, right. they had to that have way. another character, like, coaching them out of it. And right. they were, like, barely morphing back to human. Um, so so it's there to definitely create a very real threat. Oh, As absolutely. far as the series is concerned. I, I totally understand why why there are limits on it. Because you wouldn't want to be able to just infinitely morph to an infinite number of things. Because you'd be the most powerful being ever. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's Like some, Wizard 3. <laughs> that's some kind of crazy concept someone would bring up in, like, a sequel series to this book or something. Oh no. my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Don't get me started. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, so yeah, no, that's a great point. And uh, do you kind of understand how they explain morphine in general? Like, as far as, you know, these these things or these uh, aliens and everything else, they're morphine things that are both smaller and bigger than them. So does, does this book go into that at all? Or at least enough for you to buy that, Nate? Yeah, um... I guess I hadn't really given it any thought. I just took it for what it said. You know what? And that's really all you need to Sorry, do to so enjoy that. the story. Um, I, I think going into... Because they actually do go into what happens to their extra mass when they morph things that are smaller. It all gets transported up into this magical space zone. And <laughs> there, it really does go more in depth with it. But you say it works without knowing all that stuff. So. Yeah, um... That's and good that, that wasn't explained in this book, right? I didn't no, miss no, no, that no, somehow. no. Okay, good. Because okay, you were saying that, and I thought, oh, God, did I just miss, like, all of these crucial details? No, I don't think Elfengor mentioned his mass hanging okay. out in Z-Space. Yeah, point. I guess I just kind of took it that the, the body, even at a cellular and, you know, very microscopic, nanoscopic scale, was altering, and it just magic happened. Yeah, well, it's a good assumption. As long as you're aware that this isn't, you know, 1980s Transformers. You know, they are pulling mass from somewhere. They're not creating mass or destroying mass. So okay. it, it does go into it a little bit uh, throughout the rest of the normal series. So good. Appreciate it. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> There's <laughs> science. That uh, that would cross my mind eventually. I yeah. think as I got further into the series, I'm like, hey, wait a second. I can't just. I've been moxing. <laughs> Uh, right, well, moving on with the actual story in the book, uh, we're, we're at the point where we're still introducing main characters. I mean, we, we, we know Elfengor pretty well. Arboron comes in, he's another Andalite, too. Like Elfengor's, uh, you know, kind of a newbie, an heiress as well, and he's kind of a, kind of a prick, really. Well, he's more casual. He's like if, uh, if Andalites in general, especially these Aris, are kind of like uh, like Vulcans or something. They're very logical and and stiff browed and and trying to sound cooler than they are. Dude, um, Arboron's the Marco of Andalites. Yeah, Arboron's <laughs> the laid back, uh, understands his place in the universe, and he wants to be a warrior too. 
but he he almost sees beyond like what he should. He's he's actually more mature, mm-hmm. but he's still cracking jokes because he's still you know like a teenager. Um, but he gets it, I think, more than Elfangor does the situation that they're in. I would agree with you, actually. Um, it felt to me like Elfengor is really stiff, and um, no, this is the way we have to act, and we can't deviate from that. Well, yeah, it, it does make the story, I think, flow a little bit better to have two contrasting characters kind of going back and forth, as they do. And they're almost immediately right away, plots moving along, they're, they're summoned to their captain's bridge, and uh, their captain makes a strange... Uh, request of them he actually asks their advice on what to do about this script nah ship that they've uh detected in their sector or whatever <laughs> yeah. and they're going to decide to send these two newbies in which the whole script nah, i love the introduction of them because uh it basically took our urban legend of like gray aliens and brought them into the universe the nah i believe are the uh stereotypical greys yeah who are kidnapping cows and you know doing experiments on people yeah i never picked that up i don't think uh as a as a first time reader on this i was kind of surprised by that yeah i I guess i didn't make that connection either but that that's actually kind of funny it describes them as like kind of short uh gray and uh, and big bulging eyes and they're constantly for some reason abducting humans for their collection and and strange cow animals and and doing experiments and and then dropping them back on earth later Uh, well that and and the most telltale sign is that they fly literally a flying saucer yeah yeah and i i took all this in and i i even imagined little gray aliens like the the classic big eye things and i just didn't for whatever reason make the connection like oh they're playing off of you know quote aliens the fact that the script are like kind of cockroachy, or it's kind of weird. That doesn't seem like it fits. Well, I think that the, was uh, just their way of, um, I don't know, making making them more alien in general. Like it's not how we picture them. We always try to relate everything back to humans, and I think a big part of Michael Grant and Kay Applegate's uh, uh, part of creating all these different universes and aliens within them was trying to actually make them seem alien and not just a bunch of humanoids. Uh, running around like like Star Trek or something. Yeah, I I would say that's a <clears throat> a pretty good case, except for maybe the the chi. <laughs> what dog alien robots? It's not weird enough for you. <laughs> I'm just saying how how human like the chi are. are so normal with their dog parts and the raping of wolves and. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, these two are selected for this super special secret awesome mission because of their small stature, since they're the youngest Andalites on the on the ship. And, of course, you know, they're they're sent over there to uh, board this Skripna vessel, and they uh, have a little space battle where they shoot some lasers. They're sent over after that to board the ship. And this is where we get all that... that exposition drop on the Skritna and exactly how their species works. Yeah, they're cocooning all over the ship and, uh, you know, you've got all these Earth uh, things and other alien artifacts that aren't associated with the Skritna that they've collected and stolen from other planets and uh, it it definitely sets them up as, you know, just weird aliens who are out to make a buck or, or, you know, fill their alien zoos. (laughs) Yeah, they're collectors, essentially. Also aboard They're the, the ship, junkmen. 
They're the chi- <laughs> yeah, basically. The uh, what are those things from Star Wars? Jawas? Since you're always is, is that what it is? Yeah. I was actually going to compare them to Star Trek and the Ferengi, uh, who are their collectors and money makers of the universe. So plot wise, this is where we've got another couple of uh, key character introductions right now because aboard this Skritna ship are two humans, Lauren and Chapman. Which, what did you think? I mean, you'd have to venture back to, uh, and Nate, I'm sorry, you can't contribute to this this topic, but uh, (laughs) uh, when they said Chapman, do you remember when you first read this book and you were like, were you like, whoa, Chapman's there? Did you associate it with the Chapman we know or maybe his father or something? Yeah, I I thought it might have been an ancestor or something, but um, I guess not. (laughs) No, it's just, Nate, for your info, um, Chapman is a pretty integral character to the main series. He's like their vice principal at their school. Yeah, and he's also a controller, a human controller. Yeah, I knew that. They explained that later in the... Oh, good. Yeah, that's actually um, one thing. I mean, I'll get more into it with the review. But that's that's one thing I didn't especially like about this book. It's kind of like shoehorning a reference into the regular series, like a cameo or something, except he's also an important character in this in this book <laughs> you know yeah um i think it makes sense that he's there seeing as how the construction site you know is obviously in the town where all this stuff is going going down at and that's where the time matrix is and it just makes sense that you know that's where chapman would end up no luckily we have a god in this series who makes coincidences part of the plot but um well and you never never know maybe Krayak is using chapman as well <laughs> yeah and for Nate's reference, that's basically the Satan uh, of the series. Okay, yeah, they uh, they allude to a dark one, but they don't refer to him by name or anything. Yeah, that's yeah. actually interesting. I want to talk about that later when it comes up. Yeah. So anyway, back to the regular plot, though. We've got Chapman, we've got Lauren, and there are two humans uh, who the Andalites are just, you know, they don't have, at least especially these Aris, they don't have any experience with humans, and they're like, whoa, how are they standing up with two legs and stuff, you know? Yeah, well, they can't even understand them at first because they don't have their, their translators worked out to uh, address English yet, mm-hmm. which I like that they actually uh, commented on that, on all the different languages these aliens are speaking. Oh, and real quick, I, we're going to have a lot of these side notes because I'm just interested in hearing what Nate's going to say about something in the, within the universe. But uh, the way the Andalites communicate... What are your feelings on that, uh, Nate? Um, I was okay with it. Um, as far as a reader buying into this universe, um, there is an infinite possibility of how creatures work out there. So why not have a race that communicates by thought? And it, and you can kind of buy into the fact that uh, they can speak to a completely different race, and that race kind of understands them because they're not language based. It's not. It's not a language. It's almost. Uh, it's almost pushing an incredibly specific feeling into somebody's brain. So I thought of it as, um, if you think of this in like uh, computer terms, um, all computers understand ones and zeros, um, and there may be different interpretations of how, of those orders of ones and zeros, um, but effectively, anything over the computer is a one and zero, and so. Um, I kind of thought the thought speak was um, just like a raw version of 
ones and zeros that anything could interpret. That's a, Does that make sense? That's a very interesting way to put it. <laughs> uh, nope. It's not that great, but I tried. That's over my head. No, no, I think that makes that, that made perfect sense in my head. Um, it was almost as if ones and zeros were transmitted into my brain. Oh my gosh. And I just got it. <laughs> um, no, 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 yeah, it's really interesting. So I'm going to keep bringing up things like that, specifically Nate. Keep uh, drilling him. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to comment on uh, Elfengor seeing the humans for the first time. Um, I thought it was interesting because um, he, he especially observes the them only having two legs. And he thought, okay, they're going to fall over all the time. How do they walk? How do they balance themselves? I thought that was really interesting for an interstellar, for a member of an interstellar species to be so amazed by uh, a two-legged creature, um, which is actually kind of neat that not all of the human races, or human races, not all of the races out there are humanoid. To uh, It just, I don't know, makes it unique compared to a lot of the other sci-fi series out there where a lot of a lot of the other races are very human looking. Yeah. All oh, right. And uh, that's a, that's a really good point for the series overall because we do get introduced to a lot more alien races throughout the universe, and for the most part, especially the ones that the Andalites know of and everything, um, there are a couple other bipedal uh, creatures and races out there, but they always have either a tail or they're kind of like shrugged over and they use like one arm to kind of like three-leggedly walk or something along those lines. So this really is like a new species of them that they don't really understand. And it, it, it puts it in perspective, it is kind of weird, and even on our own planet, it's weird that we evolved to just start bat, like intricately balancing uh, to move around. There's not even that many creatures on our planet that do that. So Yeah, absolutely. We're pretty good at standing, I'll give us that millions of years just to master <laughs> that one thing and then you know maybe we'll stop you know like warring with each other at some point but as long as we got the standing thing down well eh. for all that evolving i sit a lot i prefer sitting <laughs> we're like de-evolving now back we we tried out this whole standing thing and now we're sick of it so we're going back <laughs> <laughs> i want prehensile tails again when's that coming you know like like monkeys they have prehensile oh, tails. tails yeah yeah like goku i didn't catch that yeah I mean, I could actually, it'd be actually really nice because then I could hold my, my glass of water with my tail while I'm using my hands to type and then just like lift it up to my mouth, not have to take a break from typing or whatever I'm doing. Video <laughs> games, probably, probably really handy there. Google, get on it. I would Make type the, with the my Google tail. tail. I would type with my tail and hold things with my hands. But that's just me. <laughs> I would hold my tail with my hands and get nothing done. <laughs> I'd hold my hand. Yeah, I'd hold my hands in my tail. <laughs> um, anyway, so there's a plot to this book, right? Uh, yeah, there's so much plot that you are just ignoring, trampling over here. And I'm so excited to talk about it too. Um, so we've got we've got aliens mixing. It's a huge alien mixer on this ship. I tell you what. But um, in the end, Delphingor manages to convince Lauren and the other human to you know put down their weapons and trust them into returning them to earth so we see them coming together here yeah i think the humans are just like shocked and awed by the entire situation so they're getting defensive obviously that's why they grabbed these weapons and held the scritna up and tried to capture their ship but the andalites come on board and even though they're these two at risk 
Um, they seem confident and that they know what they're doing and maybe they're good guys. So especially Lauren, less so Chapman. Well, um, yeah, Chapman's unconscious for most of it, but uh, yeah. as soon as the Andalites are in control there and he wakes up, he he immediately goes into his uh, kind of D-bag prick mode and uh, says some insulting things to Elfengor. I almost would have liked it more if Chapman was, like, way nicer. Like, he was a really great guy who we liked in this book a lot. Yeah, I was kind of uh, wondering why they decided to go the making him uh, a D-bag well, route. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting character arc now that we have his origin or whatever. Um, it's an interesting character arc that in the um, second book we sympathize with him because he's a guy who, for, for Nate, for your knowledge, this guy gives up his freedom, becomes a controller with a yerk in his head to save his daughter from becoming a controller. And so he sacrifices his own freedom so that she is left alone. And so he's like a he's like a Snape character almost, where he's <laughs> D-bag for most of his life, and then he has to make a uh, tragic sacrifice for a small child. So we have a we have a redemption story buried in the heart of the uh, Animorphs book series. <laughs> Get on writing it. We want to see the Chapman Chronicles. <laughs> Applegate. <laughs> it's a lot of uh, going to college for your education degree. Um. <laughs> hey there could be some interesting stuff in there you see some drinking parties and <laughs> some sharing parties chapman gets turned down for joining a frat <laughs> i'll show them i'll come back and put yurks in all their heads <laughs> he's like a he's like a cartoon network villain <laughs> Dude, it would be awesome if it was Chapman and Visor One, like, starting the Yurks, like, their whole operation on Earth. And, yeah, they started it out as a frat house. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Animal House, uh, but, but yeah, they're also, like, you know, taking control of people and enslaving the human race. It's Yurk House. <laughs> Yurk House? <laughs> <laughs> so that would be an excellent book. And back to the book we're actually talking about. Um, <laughs> you make it seem like we're we're trying to escape from this, but we're really not. <laughs> so they take over the Skritna ship. They convince these humans to not blast them out an airlock. And uh, they think that they are going to be heroes among the Andalites for, for doing this very simple task. Yeah, kind of. Um, we, get the, we get the Andalites taking the humans back to their dome ship. And this is where we get a lot of... Uh, just background information in general on the Andalite race, which we haven't had throughout the series just yet. So we kind of learned, I think this is the first instance of their uh, scoops being mentioned. So I'm looking forward to the uh, Axe building his scoop storyline coming up in the books. <laughs> yeah, or his home. Um, you know, just the way the Andalites live. Very interesting cultural stuff, of course. Uh, you would hope that in a book called The Andalite Chronicles, we'd learn a little more about their day-to-day -day lifestyle. So, Well, yeah, a little bit, but I don't know. It, it almost made it seem like they're so nomadic still, except they just settle down to work on uh, spaceship parts. And, well, it's, no, it's, it's <laughs> interesting. they got a really weird, weird... Uh, uh, Culture. Economy. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's, they... I, I think it's really interesting the fact that they uh, almost went through a phase that we humans are in now where we congregated in cities and things like that. They mentioned that. And then they realized that it'd be much better to just have small communities spread out all over their planet 
and live more nomadically, but still have the communication of like something like the internet. Yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> I'm sure the Nazis proposed something just like it. <laughs> like they <Huh>. did. <laughs> you went. That was an interesting place to go with that. <laughs> well, we've made comparisons to the Andalites and Nazis before. Oh, okay. As you should know by the way this book turns out in the end with the quantum mm. virus and whatnot. I think they're I more like I, I communist think... China, but that's just me. Yeah, I got more of a communist well, vibe than a than regardless a of what dictatorship you guys subscribe to <laughs> for this. Uh, communists, not dictators. Totally different things. But, um... <laughs> anyway, so... What are, where are we? <laughs> oh my god. I think we're on the dome they're, ship. They're walking around talking about stuff on the dome ship. But um, this is this is also where, after a little bit of bonding time with the humans, especially between Elfingor and Lauren. In the dome itself. Been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They've been, they've been chatting each other up pretty consistently so far. But this is where we actually get them. Now, they think that they're going to be assigned to taking the humans to Earth, which they are. But they don't realize that it's going to be just them, along with... Uh, another key character to the story, good old War Prince Alaron, or, or or Prince Al, <laughs> which they insinuate at this point that he is um, someone who should be revered, and obviously he's a great legend. But something really, really dark and bad happened, and he is to be shamed because of it. Yeah, so they won't... He, he's he's the disgrace of their people. I mean, he is the uh, the Kingslayer. Oh, Al. <laughs> oh war prince al so now they're they're all boarding aleron's ship the uh the jahar which jahar. reminds me of uh <laughs> reminds me of uh jafar that's what i, I thought the say. same thing that's what i want to say every time jafar me too get on the jafar quick escape with the iago ship <laughs> that's his getaway pod next week on a special after dark episode we review all four movies in the aladdin series Oh, we should. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> anyway, uh, as soon as they're aboard Alaron's ship and, and, and actually take off for Earth, um, it's quite boring. And uh, they, I like how they explain this. They couldn't travel there with uh, with light speed because they would age themselves too much. Yeah, they're, in the this, is, this is a book series aimed at middle schoolers bringing up space relativity. Boom. It, it, it certainly taught me something. I'll give you that. But um yeah, that that's why they mentioned that they're they're taking so long on this space voyage. And um as they're doing this, you know, people they 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 busy themselves in their own ways and Arboron takes to checking out some data that he retrieved from that Scritna ship that which he stole which they make fun of him for for being a total nerd messing around with the Yeah, computer. basically, which is weird because like getting to know Axe, you would think like all Andalites are just kind of nerdy like that. But there's a specific subgenre of nerd that even Andalites will bully. Well, no, <laughs> Axe, if you really read the series, Axe is kind of like, like he was probably like a jock or something in the uh, Andalite culture because he's like, I was never paying attention in class or we had a big game after after class, so I didn't hear Yeah, he that did mention day. there was a game he was thinking about one time. Yeah, dude. And uh, a female. Axe would have been the frat guy if uh, he had come to them later on in his life cycle. <laughs> sure. Well, anyway, it's it's through checking out this information that Arboron comes to uh, discover the existence of the fabled relic known as the Time Matrix, which uh, is a pretty big deal in this universe. Yeah, and they go into a little bit, they bring up the fact that 
Ooh, it was created possibly by Spooky Elimus, who we're very afraid of. <laughs> very obvious setup for the rest of the story. This is, well, this was is it almost... obvious? Or did you just think it was a, a uh, bare-bones explanation as to why this series could have a time machine? I, I did, actually. So, because um, I don't think they had... Maybe the explanation of the Elimus was already done, but... Uh... At this point, I was thinking that it was some, like, past race that no longer existed. Like, um, we, we found this ancient artifact that does this awesome thing type of, type of deal. Right, like so you, you in other words, kind of didn't expect anything to come of this Elemist plot thread? No. Oh, okay. okay I did not. Good. I guess that's our um, Animorphs knowledge getting the better of us. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Especially since we've read the first 13 books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, in general, though, I think just bringing up the time matrix is maybe not as clumsy as I believed it to be. Uh, it did feel like it was, you know, leading into later events, you know, giving us some setup for that. Yeah. Well, and I guess if you were reading this thing when it was originally published in three parts, you uh, were waiting around a while for <laughs> yeah. the next part. Nate, so... They just introduced a time machine. Where are you at on board with this story? Because we're we got aliens, we've got sci-fi tropes, we've got morphine, and they just within what you know forty pages they bring in time travel. What, what well, nobody's actually morphed at this point in the story. Yet, yeah, they've they've talked mind. about morphine though. Definitely. Yeah, they've yeah. talked about it, but they haven't done. Well, that's it. what I'm saying. This is this seems like a lot. Are you, are you, at oh this yeah, point, yeah, it's throwing it, a lot of sci-fi at him. Yeah, it seems like a lot of Doctor Who. <laughs> that's true you could i mean it. obviously not like taken directly from doctor who but a lot of doctor who elements kind of reworked and and brought back into a story and in, in with a different spin yeah no that's that's a good that's a good frame of reference as well because doctor who in the first you know 10 minutes of an episode might set up like a, a bar full of aliens and then he's obviously a time traveler coming in and um something that's that condensed uh, that much sci-fi condensed into a universe that you're just being introduced to. Doctor Who's a pretty good, uh, pretty good example of that. Way to go! Good reference. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the discovery of this super important time matrix, uh, the team kind of makes a snap decision. Well, really, it's it's Alaron's decision uh, to postpone the uh, humans' return to Earth in order to go after the Time Matrix instead, which was in this uh, second Skritna ship that happened to escape during their pursuit. Yeah, and Chapman immediately becomes the annoying character in the room who's going to be like, I'm contrarian to everything going on because I'm obviously a bad character. <laughs> yeah, and I was uh, interested in wondering Nate's opinion on how he thought the, the whole situation with Chapman was going to turn out. Did you think he was going to be the primary antagonist of the book or did you just think he was going to be one of these annoying side characters or did you think you'd come to find him endearing or so what i thought i thought one of two things would happen that either he would he would become not the bad character but he would be working with um the bad group that at this point i don't think i was introduced to i don't think i knew about the yerks yet or if I had, they were lightly touched on. And, right. At the beginning uh, of the first chapter in the overview of the universe, they mentioned them briefly, yeah. Well, okay, yeah, they yeah. mentioned they're in a war with the universe. Yeah. Um, I didn't think that Chapman himself would be 
any real threat. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of a Weasley character. Yeah, and actually, um, I found him kind of annoying because, like Mitch was saying, he seems contradictory to be contradictory. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, they could have been saying, we're taking you home right now, and he'd been like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to hang out in space. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, he's just a cynical jerk. That's... Yeah. He's, he's never got anything good to say. He's just, he's not happy. He's not helpful in any capacity. Right. In fact, the entire series would have been amazing if they just pushed him out of an airlock right now. <laughs> would have solved so many problems. No, I think it would have been badass if right off the bat when he said his uh, his initial crack at Elfangor, if uh, if Elfangor had just stabbed him in the throat and killed him instantly. <laughs> Book and series. Like, okay, we're done with that. <laughs> Book series would have taken a turn at that point. <laughs> awesome. Well, maybe the maybe the other series were part of a different timeline, like Back to the Future style, where yeah, <laughs> they altered the past. And, eh, Do not mention alternate timelines on this podcast. Uh, we have taken a firm stance against it because our fans are fighting us. My apologies. A fan is fighting Coleman. We here at ThoughtSpeak uh, believe in the <laughs> Terminator style of time travel, where... If it if someone goes back in time, then they had already gone back in time, and you can't change the past. Whatever's happening what if, has already happened. But what if every time you time travel, you're actually going to a different universe rather than moving forward or backward in the universe that you started in? All right, we're hooking this guy up with a copy of Book Eleven, The Forgotten. <laughs> uh, I just I I don't know. It's just a it's just a fun little fight that we've had with a couple <laughs> fans and. Uh, I just I, I like the I don't like the Back to the Future. Some magical force is changing the future. As oh yeah, you're as you're affecting there. it. Yeah, I like the idea that you you go back in time, and you create the present that you came from. So you're 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 talking about the uh, Bill and Ted time travel rules, exactly. where they can just be like, oh, when I when I get home in the future, I'll remember to put the car keys out on the lawn right here by this bush, and then they're suddenly there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would say it's more more straightforward. It's a little easier to follow uh, plots like that. Because when you start mixing in all these different timelines, it gets really convoluted. Well, isn't there like 11 copies of Fry in the, uh, in the room? I don't yeah. remember. <laughs> By the end of the series? Yeah, there's Futurama. just quite a few Fry's, a few Benders... <laughs> Uh, we're, we're referencing Futurama for for people yeah. still for people still tuned into this episode and haven't left yet because we're talking about time travel so much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're now talking about Futurama, but but yeah, I, I appreciate that sci-fi more when something like Futurama, where they've gone into that one uh, moment in time throughout multiple episodes, and nothing's changing. It's just they're adding more layers to what happened and and revealing more about what led to you know, probably going to the future and everyone do th- doing things. Yes, thank you for explaining that. That was well needed. <laughs> it was. I may or may not cut it all out, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and then the worst part of this mission, by the way, is that their destination happens to be the Taxon homeworld. So so their argument for uh, for changing their mission of taking these two humans back to Earth is that if this time matrix exists and the Skritna really do have it, they probably don't know what they have. But the second anyone even you know gets the idea of what it can do with this time-traveling device, this war with the Yurks could be over in a split seconds. The, the Yurks could go back in time and crush the first 
you know, hoof, uh, four-legged, you know, amphibian that crawled out of the Andalite homeworld pool. If the Yerks or anyone who is invested in this war gets a hold of the Time Matrix, they could just wipe out the entire other species of Andalites or Yerks. And so the the Andalites, especially these two Aris and War Prince Alaron, feel that there can't be anything more important than going after this Time Matrix, capturing it, and putting it in the good guys' hands, quote-unquote good guys, uh, the Andalites. Yeah, so that's not exactly the uh, place where you'd want a vacation in particular. No, it's a horrible hellhole stuffed with these creatures that eat each other and everything around them if they even slightly get hungry, which they're always hungry. They might have said why they didn't do this, but I wonder why they didn't immediately like call for backup instead of just, uh, you know, three Andalites going in there. <laughs> well, because they were uh, out of range. They're, the fighter that they're in, even though it's not a normal, you know, short-range fighter, um, the dome ship was preparing to meet them in some far-off part of the galaxy so so they're supposed to rendezvous with the main dome ship but they can't you know shoot any kind of message across three arms of the galaxy they still have the technology to do that so it's really either they go back to the dome ship regroup and then try to find the time matrix or just go after it right now which i think well yeah and it's such an important mission that they can't they can't afford to give the yurks time to investigate all the cargo and you know discover the time matrix which if you read the rest of this book if they had tried to do that then the yurks probably would have uh, gotten their hands on it and figured out what it was it's possible yeah yeah so so they go to the jackson homeworld and uh that's where the story really begins well, and they the way they manage to get there is by uh, stunning a, a nearby Yurk transport ship that they find just floating around the, the atmosphere out there. And uh, they manage to board it and fight off some uh, attacks on controllers. And I think this is the first point in the series where you get to see them. And this is also when Elfangor has his uh, his first combat freakout. Yeah, other it's it's a nice um, it's nice contrast to. We saw Elfangor thinking too much and trying to fight his trainer and, and learn how to be a real warrior with uh, blade tail fighting. And uh, this is his first instance of fighting someone who's trying to kill him. And he just slips into like pure instinct mode and scares both Aloran and Arbron in uh, just how quick and deadly he can be. Yeah, and he's just, I mean... He's <laughs> he goes o- overboard killing some Horkbajir where he's just like got him on the ground stabbing him. They're already dead, and he just kind of looks like a psychopath at this point. Which sounds like when Anakin goes to rescue his mom. <laughs> yeah, he, he just destroys the entire village. Um, and it it, it, just, it you know <laughs> gives us a little bit of a flawed protagonist, or like you, it makes him out to be a badass for the most part, but also it's you know. He's he kind of comes off like a psychopath, like he can't control uh, what he's doing, whether that's through fear or, or just some kind of Anakin well, Skywalker like anger. I think it's just trying to show that, you know, when he's got his back against the wall and he's he's in a pinch, uh, he's going to do what he has to do to, you know, survive. Exactly. We do now, now that they have the uh, transport ship that actually has some, you know, yerk transport codes or whatever whatever will get them onto the planet uh they they start descending and seeing if this plan will 
even worse. Well, and more importantly, this is also when they, they both get their first uh, text on Morph, and um, Elfengor specifically mentions that um, he's only tried one other Morph before, which was this uh, Kahit bird or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's his only experience with a Morph so far, and now he's got to do Texan. Probably one of the worst morphs ever. Besides Ant. Another pretty important uh, thing that happens before they actually land on the planet proper is you have this kind of moral argument uh, between Alaron and uh, Alfangor about the fact that this transport ship, what it's transporting, its cargo, is a bunch of helpless, blind yurks in their natural habitat. And Alaron is like, oh, sweet, the enemy, let's dump them into space. And uh, Elfingor disagrees with mass innocent murder. <laughs> right, yeah. He's not a fan of genocide, that Elfingor. That's this, is, uh, this is tough. Um, I think, I, like, I tried to put myself in Elfingor's shoes for this, and I can't honestly say that... I could make a decision one way or another. Because um, on one hand, you have this evil race of jerk yurks. <laughs> jerk yurk! <laughs> My new t-shirt. <laughs> you have this evil race of jerk yurks that, uh, that takes over the mind of any other race and then uses it for its own gain. Um... So you have the opportunity to prevent more of those Yurks from um, contributing to the Yurk Empire. Um, on the other hand, it is mass genocide, and they're defenseless, and there's nothing they can do to prevent being thrown out in space. So it's well, it's definitely quite an interesting moral dilemma. First off, let's all stop throwing around the word genocide, because they're not wiping out the Yurk race here. They're just, right. you know, mass murder. That's, that's okay. Xenocide is working, uh, is wiping out the Yurk race. Yeah. Genocide is just killing a large number of them. No, genocide is, it would, would be race, like, xenocide would be, yes, it would be wiping out a alien race, but genocide still implies that you're killing off a culture or a, you know, different race of beings. So. Maybe this group of Yurks had a subculture. <laughs> They were a tightly knit click. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're being transported because they're the last of their breed or something. But um, right. Anyway, uh, picture it like okay, you're in a you're in a truck. You have for some reason you're driving this truck full of Nazi soldiers who are asleep in the back. And, I dump them into space. And they're driving to reinforce, um, you know, the front line that's killing like American soldiers or something. So you're driving this truck. These guys are going 100 percent going to kill. Uh -huh. Americans when they get to their destination. I mean, do you drive the truck off the road and jump out, or...? Well, in this hypothetical, I feel like if I was driving a, a truck of Nazi soldiers that are sleeping in the back, that I would also be a Nazi soldier. So No, you're an I American don't... soldier. That's the, no, that's it's, the, it's the, the same question. situation as in the book. Yeah. You've infiltrated the... this truck. Oh, yeah. oh. I see. <clears throat> and you have the ability. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's really tough. I'm not... Uh... I'm not pro murdering. Period. Well, it's really. not. It's not murder. It's war. This. It's. I mean, you could make an argument for that being murder, but this isn't like the Iraq War, where it's like kind of we're the bad guys. We're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about you know 
people who are going to kill, you know, American citizens during a time where they are trying to take over the world and be, for lack of a better term, evil. Mitch, what would you do? <laughs> I'd kill them, sure. It's wartime. That or I guess, I don't know, maybe I'd just leave them. Because you wouldn't want to mess with the ship too much. I guess the Elfanger way of dealing with it could be to uh, take something out of the engine and leave the truck on the side of the road so they can't get to where they're going. Maybe <laughs> that would be a compromise. You would think time. that they would be able to, um, if they ejected this uh, container of yours, you'd think some sort of computer system they have would be able to pick it up. Yeah, at the end of the day, they're going to reinforce a side that is trying to kill people on your side. Aleron makes a pretty clear point that, hey, you're a kid, you've never been to war, you know, there's a certain number of enemy troops, and there's a certain number of your allied troops, and the bigger number is going to have an advantage. So why wouldn't you do anything possible to give your side the advantage if you believe in your cause? Yeah, but Elfengor doesn't really get behind this whole movement. Yeah. And, uh... They, uh, they they gloss over it for now. But this is where we have Elfengor and, and crew and co. Leaving Lauren with uh, just a single gun to deal with Chapman. Because obviously at this point they trust her more than him. If he raises any shit. Yeah, you know. Feel free to shoot. Shoot to kill. And then... <laughs> so yeah, they leave, they leave Lauren behind and Chapman uh, to fend for themselves on this ship in the middle of space, and they take the transport and finally descend into the atmosphere of the Taxon homeworld. Yeah, which is just a shithole. <laughs> it really is. It's not a fun place. It's I picture, like, work camps and, like, minery equipment, and, like, this is the entire planet, like a Dust Bowl, terrible spaceport, Tatooine-esque. Yeah, but with, like, just random buildings. Like, <laughs> warehouses and stuff. Yeah, it just... And, well, like the, uh, like, uh, District 9. Almost. Yeah, that, that actually is a good description of, or District 9 is a good description, I guess, of what I thought of. Like slums and... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, like little, uh, <laughs> just patched together shacks. I was surprised stuff. at first because I thought you were making a Hunger Games reference with District 9. I was like, Mitch hates the Hunger Games. Why, why would yeah. he make that reference? <laughs> no. The good District 9, Coleman. Whoa, shots fired. My gosh. <laughs> Pew. <laughs> pew, 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 Draken shots. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not a good planet. It's the terror of the universe. This planet and the inhabitants, these taxons, uh, they're just vile. Everything about them is vile. They're the only race to, as a group, decide to give up their freedom for a slightly easier lifestyle controlled by Yerks. Um, it's pretty messed up. Sounds like a fun time. <laughs> yeah, so they just... yeah. They need to find the time matrix. It's somewhere in the spaceport, which is vast. It's not even like city size. It's they said from horizon to horizon is the city, the spaceport. Oh, see, I was picturing it kind of small, but yeah, that's huge. No, they said yeah. And I like how as soon as they land there, <clears throat> the very first thing that happens is they get separated. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's for a great. Uh, if you haven't read this series before, you know, if you're if you're Nate in this scenario. Uh, you get to immediately get the characteristics of a taxon, where they land, they get out, they're morphed as taxons, and there's, you know, uh, what is there, an accident? Somebody, or no, uh, somebody's being punished? No, like, no, what a, is it? Uh, something, a, a heavy load of cargo drops oh, yeah. from a crane and, and like, a taxon crushes. Or no, wait, doesn't a taxon fall it off fall, a tower Yeah, there's or like something? a, there's something, 
there's some reason that a taxon is up above the other ones, and then it falls and kind of splats on the ground, and then all the other ones come in and go after it and start nom-nomming it. It's a feeding frenzy, yeah. yeah and this is where where everyone is scattered and uh, split up, basically. Yeah, so in this chaos of feeding, uh, all three of them are taxons. You can barely tell taxons apart, and they're all three motivated by pure, incredibly strong instinct to go towards this dying, you know, destroyed taxon and feed off of them, just like all the other taxons. So in that chaos, obviously it's pandemonium, can't see each other, and somehow Elfangor just pushes himself away. He doesn't want to eat, he doesn't want to, you know, go into this cannibalistic frenzy, uh, and he actually backs away. He has that much willpower to get out of it. Yeah, he got out of it pretty easy. Yeah. As we find out, not this, not such the case for uh, Arboron. Or alluded to Alaron either. Um, it's possible he was right up in there. He's over there willingly. <laughs> down. He's like, well, I am hungry. <laughs> Better stay strong. <laughs> Better than grass. Yeah, but obviously this is Elfangor's mistake because a taxon not feeding on a ready food source uh, food source is the you know biggest cons- um, conspicuous thing you could do on the Texan homeworld. Oh, it, it's a it's a tell, yeah. yeah. And this is uh, especially troubling as he immediately runs into Subvisor Seven with a group of Horkbajir, probably like elite warriors surrounding. They, him. they get karate geese. <laughs> and Subvisor Seven is a he's in an elf or he's in a Horkbajir body as well, right? Yeah, yeah, because that's like the most powerful one they've got thus far. Pretty much. Oh, you, is that slam against the Jed? Is that what you're yeah, doing? Definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, so they are obviously, tax, this taxi didn't feed. They are suspicious. And they go after him, surround him, and confront him, and, and assume right away almost that he's an Andalite morph. Yeah, it's, it's not a whole lot of guessing here. They, uh, they know pretty well what he is, and they capture him me- immediately. And uh, since, you know, Elfengor is obviously going to refuse to become... His host body, which he asks him for politely, he's like, "Hey, uh, cut your deal. <laughs> Be my host body." And he's like, "Lol, no." This this subvisor seven is pretty obsessed with the idea of having an Andalite host body. Yeah, it's uh, the centaurs really do it for him. <laughs> he's into that sort of thing. He wants to frolic and gallop across the landscape. Yeah, and in the first of many just dumb moves on subvisor subvisor seven. Uh, he allows Elfangor to basically jump from this uh, monorail that they're all on and, you know, get to a place where he could morph out and morph into something else. It's your classic uh, Return of the Jedi problem where they're taking him out to the Saxon Mound or Sarlacc Pit. And uh, they, they think it's going to go really well where they're going to push him in there and then, ah, he's dead. I don't, I don't remember any Ewoks in this scene. So I don't know what you're but, uh, trying to not quite the case here. Yeah, he gets out of it almost immediately just by morphing into something else, which you think... Yeah, he, he morphs into the Kafit bird. That's what it's called. Yeah, that you mentioned earlier. One of his right. first morphs, which... Uh... And then he just flies right back to the spaceport. So this was a little, a little detour. <laughs> yeah, another interesting thing about this is the fact that he... Uh, he says he's only morphed this once. So they actually, I, I think I compared it this, I think I compared it to this in an earlier episode with Axe, but the fact that all Andalites see morphing technology as a flat-out weapon. It's like putting your 
finger on the trigger of a loaded gun. So Oh yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. They don't think of, you know, practical application of this. Or morphine for fun. That's just non-existent to the Andalites. Right, yeah, they would never do it without purpose. So he's only morphed this bird thing once, so he's just trying to figure out how to fly when he <laughs> when he gets back into it. Uh, but it takes him back to the main section of the spaceport that he came in originally, and he starts looking for the uh, Skritna ship because he assumes that Alaron and uh, Arbron, you know, they have no other point of reference, so they're probably all heading towards that direction. Yeah, that's what you would think, until he actually arrives at the spaceport and sees Alaron's ship, the Jahar, landing. And he's like, WTF! <laughs> and, of course, Chapman overpowered this teenage girl somehow um, yeah I, I don't know how he uh managed to subdue her with her uh i, I believe she had a drink on beam lauren look over there or, or a what? stunner a generic stunner i'm sure he she didn't seem like the brightest kid who's ever been captured by aliens so i don't know man later when she's uh nailing softballs at uh visitor three and his goons she seemed like a fighter to me spoilers um <laughs> well yeah so anyway chapman in your typical d-baggy chapman fashion is there with uh lauren hostage and tied up and claims that he's going to trade the uh humans of planet earth to the yurks and we're all like oh no just a real dick move i mean it's not even <laughs> it's not even a matter of like hey i'll give you this girl for you know, my freedom. He's like, oh, so there's this human race, probably the best host bodies you could ever have. I'll just, like, totally tell you where they are, you know, if you want. Yeah, no, he's very much like, I'll give them to you. I thought this was really interesting, that he would offer to tell the Yerks where Earth was and, and how to take the humans and so they become controllers. But uh, what I didn't I don't know why he would do that, because what's to prevent them from just saying, oh, okay, tell us, and then they just take him right there and then just, like, siphon the information out of his brain? Well, at this point in the series, he would be a valuable host body for them, too, because he would be the first human host. Well, that's that's my so point. Far. Like, so they would gain a lot of information just from him. Why general. don't they just do that? Yeah, he, Nate's, saying, Nate's saying, why don't they just, why even bargain? You know, yeah, exactly. You could just take them. Oh, I don't know, because the plot deems it necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe, uh, I mean, he is still holding a weapon, so I'm sure none of them want to get shot. They could probably overpower him pretty easily, but... Well, it's another thing where this is a new alien that they have no idea what he's capable of, and yeah, sure, he looks goofy on his two legs, but, uh, you know, maybe he's got a hidden a hidden yeah. third plus, appendage. Plus, you know, uh, maybe it doesn't bring it up in this book so much, Nate, but... We have seen that if you volunteer to be a host for a Yurk, is much easier to work with that brain than it is if they're fighting all the time uh. internally. So you could make a semi-argument maybe for if they force it on him, he could possibly, with a vast amount of willpower, keep that information from them. And it would just be much easier just to listen to him for five seconds. Okay. All right. That's works for me. <laughs> um so so elfinger's seen this whole situation unfold in just the worst possible way interesting point this is the end of part one. <laughs> oh, really okay 
Fair enough. A little cliffhanger. Immediately after Chapman says, I've got a whole planet of that to trade you. Yeah, that's the end of part one. Wink. He can't even bargain with anything else first. Like, tell them about, like, Saturn or something. And, you know, maybe not give out the whole human race right away. But I don't know. That put, Saturn puts them in the neighborhood. You might as well just tell them about Earth. Yeah. Right then and there. <laughs> um. But so after so okay, where do we? Where's the hard line? So he says, "I can give you a whole plan of that," and then we go into part two, essentially, right? Yeah, and this starts out with Alfengor kind of traveling through the Texan city, just sort of recapping what he's just seen, and the fact that he'd been split from from Arboron and uh, his team, and and the fact that Chapman just showed up offering, you know, Lauren and the human race. And then he pretty much runs straight into Arboron, who is still suspiciously in Texan morph and kind of acting really strange. He's got some weird dialogue segments and here. And he runs that... into him at the uh, Skritna ship. He finds the Skritna ship. He kind of leaves the humans to fend for themselves for a little bit because he's still after the Time Matrix. So uh, that's where he finds Arboron when he actually finds the Skritna ship. Arboron's nearby. <laughs> yeah, basically, because immediately after meeting, you know, even though Arbron's acting a little weird, he's still all about doing the mission. And that's when they go ahead and board the ship and take out its crew by uh, Elfengor demorphs quickly because he doesn't want to fight in Texan form. It's kind of useless. Yeah. So uh, he, he demorphs, but uh, suspiciously again, Arbron does not. And... Right then, we've we've got this scene where Elfengor is basically coming to terms with learning that Arboron is now trapped in Taxonmorph. It's a pretty traumatic situation. Just the worst thing you could ever get trapped as. <laughs> basically. And this leads into kind of an action scene, right? With uh, them speeding the Skritna ship away, trying to just, you know. Yeah, yeah. This was kind of uh, neat, I thought, because uh, <laughs> it's like this super high-speed chase where they are literally like flying across the planet just making huge uh uh shock waves in their path and this is where arbron you know gets to show off his his piloting skills and his weaponary weaponry skills by destroying these bug fighters that are pursuing him and you know it's an action scene it's kind of a weird trait they gave him uh earlier in the book and now they're showing that he's like really precise with um you know i guess calculating uh, the fighters well also the fact that the 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 ship that they're in the scritna ship was made for for texan hands i believe or texan hands make it easier to to operate or something like that so yeah he's 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 good at the controls yeah so they get away though they blow up these bug fighters coming after them um and uh he immediately arbron not elfinger uh he starts kind of goading elfangor uh, to fight him or to get in, you know, just try to basically goad him to um, take him out because he doesn't want to exist as a taxon, you know, an Andalite trapped as a taxon. That's just like their worst fear. Right, yeah. He he goes, as soon as they're, you know, out of immediate danger and into safety, he goes into uh, the suicide mode pretty quick. Huh. <laughs> um, which one? How's that? How's that resolve? <laughs> oh, well, he, he eventually goes mad and uh, tries to convince Elfengor that uh, he needs to kill him or he's going to try and eat him, which he affectionately does go to eat Affectionately? 
<laughs> yes, it's very affectionate. <laughs> Give me a hug. <laughs> and Elfingor's like, uh, no. And just <laughs> really easily takes off a couple of his legs. Which grow and, back, uh, which we find out. Um, this feels like this feels like Kay Applegate writing herself into a little corner. She's like uh, writing this, and she's like, okay, he cuts off some legs. Oh, wait, that's really sad. Uh <laughs> Oh, no, I think she back. just couldn't have Arborn crippled for the rest of the series. She would do that. <laughs> That's totally her. Maybe. Well, for, for the time being, yes, he is crippled. But he still manages to uh, kind of trick or goad Elfingor into pulling out a Dracon beam. And he takes a shot, but he misses, of course. He's no Arbron. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. And part of that, too, was wasn't there a... A comment that um, the intensity dial is reversed, and so when he's telling, when he's talking to Elfengor, that he says, "Oh yeah, on on this model of the Dracon beam, high is actually low, and low is high, so you have to crank it up all the way." And yeah, this, this is into, how he tricks him to yeah. to trying to kill him instead of just stunning and knocking him out. Yeah, it's not Elf- the the cleverest of tricks. No. But... Yeah, and Elfengor, they kind of play him up as. Um... Obviously, he's brave and he's a really good fighter, but uh, he's almost like, oh, wow, thanks for telling me, bro. And he almost like does it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, he ends up missing here. And I thought that uh, him, a part of him missing uh, Arboron here had to do with the Elemist again, kind of pulling some strings and maybe altering a couple details. Yeah, he kind of says that he, at the last minute, figured it out. Yeah, but he is already in the muscle movement of doing it. So you could make an argument for uh, the Elemis just sitting there shaking his head, being like, oh, gosh, don't shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, don't fall for that. You're going to fall for that? Why did I pick this guy? <laughs> I know I'm all-knowing and all-seeing, but come on. You should have seen that, too. Help me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um... It doesn't go so well for, for either of them, really, because as he misses Arboron, the uh, the Draken Beam strikes the uh, computer console, the control console for the spaceship. So, of course, they have to do their obligatory crash scene. Yeah, and uh, Elfanger gets knocked out, of course, because that's how they move forward in time. <laughs> yeah, that's how you advance a scene. Yeah. It's writing 101. Yeah, he... You never need to advance a scene. <laughs> Just knock that character the hell out. Yeah, exactly. And he wakes up. Arbron's gone. There's some taxon tracks leading away. It looks like uh, Arbron might have gotten dragged away by other taxons or something. So he's probably dead. Um, this, yeah, this book is literally just one bad situation to another. Pretty, well, that's taxon homeworld. Just don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> bad stuff happens on the taxon homeworld. Yeah, so he has no way to get back. They've already traveled hundreds of miles probably from the spaceport. I hear it's entirely controlled by Republicans. I'm a Republican. Case in point. <laughs> a moderate, moderate Republican. Oh, but yeah, by the way, this is when he wakes up later and, and, and finds all this neat stuff. Um, this is where he's searching the ship's cargo hold to kind of get more information. And of course, he finds the time matrix there. But there's a lot of other cool stuff from Earth, uh, including, but not limited to, a neat car that is a going convertible to play Mustang. Here specifically um which he kind of figures out what it is pretty uh quickly kind of surprisingly quickly he's like oh this must be some sort of transport vehicle i used to see wheels on something even andalites who have been flying for the past thousand years probably 
Oh, yeah, and he mentioned that he thought it was funny that it had wheels, yeah. I think. Did you, uh, did this come to mind for you? So when they described the time matrix, it's basically just a big white ball. Did you immediately think the time matrix might just possibly be an alternate Gantz ball? Yeah, reverse Gantz ball. Um, <laughs> no, because I always pictured it as, and I'm trying to figure out, because um, I know what I can reference that is similar to in my mind, but okay. Have you guys ever seen Star Trek for the movie with the humpback mm, whales? No. Basically I pictured this giant ball with, um, almost looks like, like the pattern of your brain, like all these little crevices and like pebbles looking surface, even though it's not described like that at all in the book. That's what I pictured. Like this, excuse me, um, this glowing kind of pebbly, ball and it's just like almost looks like a brain substance thing i don't know why i pictured that that's just what i always thought it was even i guess i I have no clear image of what the time matrix ever looked like i I could never remember i don't remember it being described as a white ball though i'll I'll tell you that i i thought of like this this perfectly white sphere um kind of pearl-esque and pearls aren't necessarily perfect but yeah um and it just kind of had this um slight glowing illumination to it but but perfectly spherical and and almost perfectly white you know what would have been cool if it was if it was described as a um uh like obviously there would be something there but like if you couldn't tell what was there like if it was a void uh kind of in space like a sphere of just nothing that would kind of make sense with the time travel and being some kind of ethereal device um that would be kind of cool, but that's not described as all, so I don't even know why I brought it up. Because <laughs> <laughs> you love wasting time. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, he's, Time Matrix is there. There's a Mustang. Well, yeah, he, he's <laughs> you know he's feeling somewhat decent about his situation now that he's got the Time Matrix. He still doesn't want to use it because he is afraid. And... He's afraid specifically of the Olympus. It's like a childhood, like... Uh, not Santa Claus. No one's afraid of Santa Claus. But like a, a childhood boogeyman. The perfect uh, analogy. It's like finding the uh, the puzzle box thing from uh, Hellraiser. Hellraiser. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing what it does, but being like, oh, I don't want to touch that. I'm not going to summon Hellraiser. Eternal pain and pleasure. Um, yeah, don't don't summon Hellraiser. That's really what this podcast is trying to get across <laughs> to our listeners. It's not going to be a good time. It's not worth it, man. Um, but yeah, yeah, something, basically, it's, he's just afraid of messing with forces too big for him. Um, right, so he, he bides his time, he waits until the, the Texan sun comes up, and, uh, this is when he discovers the, uh, the Texan tracks and kind of realizes which direction he needs to head in. And then he starts thinking about how he's going to modify this Mustang to, uh, go look for Texans, and I thought this was one of the coolest scenes in the book where he's taken out the uh the seats inside the mustang and now he's driving it across this texan homeworld sipping sipping dr pepper from a little in his pan hoof. yeah like a little paint can or something um but <laughs> i imagine it like a little saucer yeah like a pie tin um but it is yeah it is <laughs> weird you know it's 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 playing with our human perspective being like oh yeah he's in a mustang on an alien planet it's it's cool imagery if you think about it uh it'd be really weird if it was adapted into like a movie or a tv show seeing this scene 
Uh, well, I imagine just he would uh, he would kind of sit on his you know rump with his his hind legs. No, he stands. He's standing in it. He takes the seats out and he stands in it. I would think he'd be he'd be hunched down a little bit. Uh, they At don't, his, his they don't sit very legs. often. Andalites stand a lot. No, they don't. You stand a lot. Actually, we just talked about how he sits a lot. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. I prefer sitting, remember? No, Mitch does. Whatever. This is the worst, <laughs> the worst <laughs> distraction ever. The worst ever. tangent. Um, he's driving along in this Mustang, progressing the plot as he goes. Um, well, it's awesome because he's driving around and he, he, he figures out how to work the stereo and there's music references and it's just a good time. I mean, for for a book that's been pretty dark and dis uh, not disappointing but depressing <laughs> thus far, this is a nice little quirky, upbeat sort of comedic relief moment. Yeah, that's fair. It's definitely lighthearted. Yeah, and um... it doesn't last long. I mean, he crashes pretty quickly. Yeah, we did need a scene <laughs> like that, especially after the whole Arron reveal of being trapped in one of the worst bodies ever, and his life's over, and ugh. So, so yeah, a little lighthearted scene like this, nice. Good, good setup. Well, I just wish he had like sunglasses that he pulled out of the <laughs> center console and put a pair on his face. Like and two put sets. a pair on his stock eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be funny. Um, but as you said, he is almost immediately <laughs> just kidnapped. The ground opens up in front of him. And... Well, yeah, and that's part of this uh, this this new sort of character we're introduced to eventually. Um. I, I think it, it kind of, you know, knew where he was and opened up his specific point for him to fall in. Yeah, and he goes into this um, tunnel that leads to this mountain, which is described as a living hive uh, with taxons who aren't uh, hosts of the uh, Yerks. Yeah, this is where he once again meets up with Arboron, who is kind of like, hey, I've uh, joined up with this here living hive and it sort of is the, uh, well, it's basically like the queen from Ender's, uh, the Ender series, you know? Or aliens or something, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you think this is the normal state of taxons? Like, before the Yerks showed up, do you think it was just these colonies all over the planet with a bunch of, or a bunch of taxons surrounded by this living uh, mountain or whatever controlling them? Yeah, this, this living hive thing, maybe. I mean, it seems like they could be more ant-like, I guess. Yeah. At least in the, the way they live. Maybe not in terms of, like, their intelligence. That's true. Yep. Yeah, for what it's worth, that's exactly what I thought. Um, that this is kind of their natural state, and they've managed to elude the Yerks. And um, this is just how they be. <laughs> this, is, this is just them doing them. Look, you, you do you. All right, you do you. I'll do, I'll do me. We're gonna do. We're gonna do we. <laughs> right, and 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 uh, uh, despite you know, just how little sense it makes, Arbron's convinced. He's like, now that I'm here to lead them, we're going to attack the spaceport tomorrow. And Elfinger's like, why? I'm with Elfinger. This seems super rushed. It's like now yeah. there's like a <laughs> civil war subplot. And <laughs> like we're getting well, into this yeah, quick. Well, it was it was primarily because of uh, you know Arborin being an Andalite in Texan morph is there to sympathize with the Texan cause. And I guess and... that gave the uh, Living Hive a reason to stage an attack. It gave them more, um, I guess, just another resource, and and maybe made them 
make a decision to finally, you know, go after the spaceport and try to hurt the Yerks or somewhat? I think the uh, Living Hive has assimilated some of Arboron's uh, suicidal tendencies now. Tenaciousness. And, <laughs> and so now it's just like, fuck it, suicide mission. I want to be an Andalite again, said the Living Hive. <laughs> <laughs> get that get that Living Hive some morphing power. So Alfinger's just like, all right, what are we doing? Sure. Okay, I'll be a part of it. <laughs> Yeah, he tries to convince him, you know, not to, but it, that's not going to work at this point. And yeah. uh, Elfingor actually spends the night down there in the tunnel, which just sounds like a fun time. Terrifying. Um. <laughs> and then this is when Arborn comes back out and tells Elfingor that they, they moved his vehicle to a tube that's going to take him back to the spaceport. And uh, that's that's where he heads. So Elfingor, Elfingor is driving his uh, cool Mustang down this living hive tunnel that leads him back out eventually to the spaceport. Um, and it, it, it literally takes him exactly back to where he needs to go because he pops out of the ground and he's like back at the Jahar. And there's all these uh, uh, Texans and Hork-Bajirs that are like rushing the ship. And he manages to, uh, to somehow fight his way aboard. And uh, this is when Subvisor 7 shows up again. When Subvisor 7 shows up, he doesn't show up alone. He actually brings some hardcore-looking Horkbajir. From at least Elfanger's perspective, this is, like, more muscle-bound. This is the Arnold Schwarzenegger of uh, Horkbajir following him. And, right. And, yeah, it's either fight him or die immediately and have the human race captured and benefiting the York Empire. Not to mention well, the little seems, time matrix it's... thing. Yeah, it seems like it's uh, not going too well until Alaron shows up in in his uh, his own Hork Bajir morph, which is it's kind of cool. I, I wasn't really expecting it. Well, he but... was following with Subvisor Seven, right? And then he just turns and starts fighting them. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So kind of a neat moment. <laughs> and this is where they manage to capture Subvisor Seven and uh, board this this the Jahar again and leave Arboron behind. By his own yeah. will. I mean, he... Yeah, he, he decides to stay behind. And he, he forces Elfinger. He tells him right here, don't tell anyone what happened to me. I died in battle. Right, yeah. And Elfinger's like, oh, no, come back with us. We'll uh, we'll find a way to... We'll make a nice little tax and scoop for you on the Andalite homeworld, and everyone will love you. <laughs> You'll be like our mascot. Our disgusting, horrible mascot. Ugh. Just looking at you. Ugh. <laughs> 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 um... But they get away. They somehow, in this huge battle of taxon on taxons and free taxons and civil war and subvisors on Horkbajir elite warriors all fighting, they make it exactly to the ship they want to make it to and get out. Amazingly. I'm really trying yeah, to, I'm really uh... trying to pinpoint how insane impossible this one point is and how they buy into it. <laughs> it's pretty dicey, but they explain it in a way that I mean, it, it makes perfect and total well, sense. Yeah, later I just they ate it up. <laughs> you ate it up. <laughs> um, so what happens on the ship? Uh, we get right back into uh, Alaron once again being kind of a, a dick, and he's like, <laughs> "Oh no, we've got unfinished business. We gotta we we uh, uh finish off those uh, Yerks on the transport ship." If you recall. Yeah, and he is so Alfinger is so against the killing of. 
Yerks, which I, you know, obviously we can sympathize with him. It's it is murder because these are these should be like prisoners of war, if anything. Um, so Alaron, obviously, with his sordid past, which does that go into it here at all? Do you remember if it does? Uh, Doesn't he explain a little soon. more? Soon. Okay. Okay. So obviously, Alaron has he has war experience, and he's just he knows that this is a deadly force but elfanger's not about to make that big of an ethical drop and he's just not ready for it. he's not re- he's not ready for the realities of war and he goes so far as to turn against his commanding officer aleron and uh and stuns him with the help of the humans well yeah chapman kind of plays a big part of that because as soon as he becomes involved or involves himself in this uh you know things aren't going to turn out very well for whoever's siding with chapman their first mission after stunning aleron he's laying on the floor over there uh lauren yeah. lauren comes up and she kind of comforts elfangor you know they're getting a little touchy-feely this uh two alien races this book's going in a totally different but saucy direction um <laughs> they they have to go back and get the time matrix because you know elfangor left it in the desert for anyone to find yeah it's pretty important <laughs> But and this is where things start connecting in Elfinger's brain. It's like, you know what? It's maybe a little too easy getting out of that spaceport. And right, yeah. And this is, this occurs when he actually goes. Uh, they 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 found the time matrix. I mean, he's stepped outside the ship and he's confirmed that it's still there and it's all right and it's intact. And and then there's this big reveal when he turns around and. Someone who we who we thought was a uh, good guy is revealed not to be so. Who? Everyone. <laughs> Lauren, Chapman, Alaron, everybody. Yeah, they had Yerks, of course. I mean, all the, the humans were left with it's it's like Nate said earlier. They the humans were left with the Yerks, and they had no you know real bargaining chips or reason for the Yerks not to take them. So of course they would be controllers at this point. I mean it's. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and he he just assumed the best, and uh, really led to this part right here where um, uh, Subvisor Seven has kind of dropped his Horkbajir body and jumped into Alaron, the first Andalite controller. Yeah, he's pretty super psyched about it too. He's super pumped. He has like a seven foot long Andalite erection in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> He is pumped to take over that body. That bod. <laughs> he wants his bod. Pretty bad. Yeah. And, uh, you know, surprisingly, Elfingor manages to uh, come out ahead in the situation and stun the Subvisor 7 and, and regather the humans and kind of um, manages to trick the Yurks into not pursuing him just long enough to be able to grab the Time Matrix and go. Not only that, he actually tricks the Yurks who show up, the, the bug fighters who've been following them. He tricks them to start uh, shooting at Alaron, uh, or I guess we should call him Visor 7 at this point. Uh, yes, to, to, Sub-Visor 7. To play around and uh, foe hunt him because the Yurks and the bug fighters, they were told that an Andalite would be taken but they can't tell the difference between two Andalites. So he's, he pretends to be Subvisor 7 and uh, tells them to play with uh, uh, Alaron slash actual Subvisor 7. Yeah, they, he tells them to make them run, which they do. <laughs> they do. Good good old bug fighters. <laughs> Following commands. 
from someone. <laughs> right. Well, and now we're, uh, we're, we're we've returned to space. It's Elfingor and and just the two humans, and they've tied up Chapman. They're not taking any more chances with him. The little asshole. And he's convinced. And, uh, uh, and he's convinced the Yurk and Lauren's head. Uh, to come out willingly, otherwise he'll starve him to death. Uh, from it, Nate, did you? Okay, this is a good question for Nate, real quick. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did this make sense? When did they go in? Do you know anything about how Yurks eat or anything from reading this book? Yeah, this was explained that there's some sort of magical sunshine sunshine rays that they eat on, uh, or they feed on rather, mm-hmm. and um, they have to come out of their host body. Um, every so often, I don't remember how often it's that like was. It's like three days, three Earth days. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, they need to come out to feed, and if they don't, they basically starve. Yeah, it's like a so... terrible, terrible death for them to starve to death. Like, worse than us. And it's it's basically like the, the rays of their home planet, which their their sun is called, like, the Kandrona. And uh, these Kandrona rays, which is just their sun's natural radiation, basically fills the pools that the Yurks in their natural state live in. And that's just how they, that's what they feed off of this radiation. So once they started taking host bodies and stuff like that, they had to always every three days, you know, return to their pools, uh, suck up that radiation. So this Yurk does not like the idea of starving to death, especially since he's already lost. Yurks are very pragmatic that way. They don't fight when there's no reason to fight. And uh, Elfinger convinces him that, Hey, I'm not going to kill you immediately if you come out now. I'll just freeze you and keep you safe. Which his version of freeze It's a lie. Which his version of keeping him safe is shooting him into a nearby sun. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, he ejects him into space, and what happens in space? Stays, stays in space. space. <laughs> <laughs> which he's got to do him, and he's got to let the Yurk do the Yurk. This is my second note. Or did the did the ship already sail on that joke? <laughs> no, no, that joke is always valid. <laughs> Um, this is my only second note that I, I wrote down is that I'd love to see a future book where this Yurk didn't go into the sun. He's been frozen for like 50 years and he becomes this huge villain that comes out of space pissed off because he was shot into a sun and he comes back into the series. That would be an amazing Oh, book. that would be cool. Yeah. I, I think. Why stop at 50 years? Why don't we, why don't we make it like... 500 years yeah like some future uh future earth there's andalites and humans living together and and this yurk descends in a ship (laughs) where is elfangor and there are no more york yorks Yorks. (laughs) there's no more yorks through through one mean or another i mean there's there's no more yurks so this is the last yurk and then like in doctor who somehow he breeds a thousand other yurks and there's (laughs) Uh, billions of Daleks. When and then it's an entirely overcomplicated plot. It has been established, uh, for your frame of reference, Nate, that a Yurk can gain the morphing power, turn into something that can then turn into a Yurk, and then enter a Yurk. So you could have just an entire line of Yurks inside each other. You could have like a billion Yurks all That's morphed so into Yurks, controlling Yurks. It's so Inception. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so with the Yurk breeding... Are there three different genders? Or are they are they all like they're kind of non-gender? We haven't gotten to that point in the series yet. Yeah, so oh, okay. It's not worth talking about here. I guess not even yeah. get an answer then. <laughs> I wish I could go into it more and uh, tell you which yerk species you should feel sexually attracted to, but uh, I just don't have that information. The answer is all of them. Uh, 
Right. So, so anyway, so he shoots this yurk into the sun. He's done with that guy. Um, yeah, and then that leaves our, our lovely, uh, plucky heroes, Elfingor and Lauren, uh, traveling through space together. And of course, they're they're getting in more bonding time, and it's all really great. I have a, a theory that, you know, Catherine Applegate is probably really into centaurs herself. And so this whole story idea is like her really staking her claim on the centaur genre. That makes a lot of this make sense. It's like Twilight <laughs> with centaurs. Exactly. That's the way I thought of it. I thought there was some weird stuff happening. and She put yeah. herself into this story, and she was like, I am just going to live my centaur fantasy <laughs> right here and now. Yeah, well, to be fair, um, it's not really touched on when they first meet the humans, but more so when we get into this next big plot thing that's about to happen. Yeah. Um, Lauren's really like, she's like the Animorphs age. She's like 13 or 12. Yeah, uh, yeah. She's really young. For some reason, this entire book, I was reading them as, like, Chapman and her being, like, 17 and 18 for some reason. The the Anyway, the point is, they're traveling through space, and uh, Elfengor's got this plan to bring their ship out of Z-Space, and uh, they should end up somewhere near this uh, fleet of Andalite dome ships that they're super excited about. Yeah, and they right? their plan is basically, they know the Yurks are following them, because... You know, this is the ship that the Yerks were all over for, you know, hours and hours. So they know it's probably bugged and has tracking devices or whatever. So Elfinger's plan is to get as close, you know, go into light speed, get as close to the, uh, or go to Z-Space, not light speed. Totally different sci-fi universe. <laughs> go into Z-Space and get as close to the dome ships as possible, which are these insanely powerful, and that's, the, that's their, you know, carrier ships. That's their most powerful ships. So... They could trick these Yurks into going straight into uh, fighting the biggest, most badass Andalite ships out there. Yeah, it's basically a, a certain win scenario for them. Yeah. That's what they think. Hoping that the Andalites don't blast this random Skritna ship out of nowhere. Yeah, that too. <laughs> um, and However, it, it goes quite differently for them. It gets to a really weird point. I gotta say, I didn't even rereading this book, and I've read this book maybe three times. I don't remember this at all. <laughs> no, I don't remember this at all either. I assume it was kind of shoehorned in to just add some tension to the scene and to make things not work out for the, the heroes. Actually, yeah. So I thought something was going to happen with the asteroids. And we were talking about the asteroids uh, oh, and, right? and nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is uh, I think this is another example. I really think they had, the, the writers of this book, uh, had an agenda to, just like with the rest of the series, just makes space weird and alien and ununderstandable by humans. So, like, little events like this, introducing rock creatures, it's very uh, it's very reminiscent of trying to just make space, like, this dangerous alien place. Well, yeah, it seems a lot like, uh, I want to say Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but where it falls short there is it's not quite as clever and as humorous as, as Hitchhiker's Guide would have done. It's not trying to be humorous at all. They're getting eaten by rocks and it's scary no i know but i mean it's like <laughs> random things happening you know yeah it's just it's just like it's like going in the ocean you know you're scuba diving and there's sharks and you turn over a rock and it's really a poisonous octopus and what the hell you know yep that's every trip to the beach of mine <laughs> <laughs> damn these octopi <laughs> um 
Yeah, well, anyway, they're they're rock monsters in space, and they're attracted to uh, energy, I guess. This particular form you know of what? energy that taking they're this, all shooting at each taking other. Taking this out of the book, like, separating it, this little point, it's kind of a cool little scene. It's almost like they had this idea and just put it in the book because they liked the idea. Like, this is a danger, like, oh, shit, we're in this asteroid field, and... Oh, they're attracted to energy. What do we? We gotta fight them off. You know, it's just it's right. It's yeah, a cool it's, it's a very hectic, crazy scenario. Yeah, and it reminds me random. a lot of the uh, the new uh, Star Trek remake, the the first one. Yeah, where they come out of uh, warp speed or whatever it is, and they're in the middle of that huge battle that's going on. Mm-hmm. Do you recall what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, no, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah, well, th- this seems very much like it would be that same scenario. I do not. You don't? I don't remember that at all. Oh. Hmm. Watch the movie. Again. We can do nothing for you, to. son. <laughs> I've got the Blu-ray. I'll just have to pop it in when I go home. There you go. Um, it also, I think it's a nice throwback to uh, like Atomic Age sci-fi movies and and uh, TV shows as well. Like, there's always some kind of rock creature. Uh, even Galaxy, oh, yeah, even yeah, Galaxy Quest with uh, Tim Allen makes a joke about that. They go to that alien planet and there's a big rock creature. Yep. Futurama has made fun of it multiple times. As well. I, I've been known to throw in a, a rock creature or two into uh, some of my books. Some say that's the sign of the best authors. <laughs> you gotta know when to add some sort of uh, rock-like being into your story. The trick is knowing when to do it. <laughs> that's right. All the time, and then immediately disregard it to the overall plot. <laughs> that's the trick. <laughs> Yeah, so these these energy eating rocks, uh, energy eating space rocks, um, manage to uh, take out most of the Andalites and and basically all the conflict immediately. And the way they solve this problem is by just shutting down their ship, so they're uh, not drawing it in with their energy things anymore. But even as they solve one problem, another problem zero spaces right in. Uh, the Yurks <laughs> show up. And now they're being led by not sub Visor 7, but Visor 32. Same character, new title. And Visor 32 is pissed because even though he's got his nice new Andalite body, he was still uh, tricked by, you know, an Arist. Uh, Arist. He Arist. is wanting to capture them or kill them or whatever evil villains do in these scenarios. Yeah, and Elfengor actually comes up with a plan to sort of use Lauren to trick this, uh, the, the now Visitor 32 into docking with his ship, only to <laughs> kind of blast at it and cause this vacuum to, uh, uh, oh, it's, it's like a vacuum to space. Yeah, inside and this only ship. works because, um, as far as Visitor 32 knows, uh, Lauren is still a controller and has managed to trick everybody on board and take control of the ship. So, uh, yeah, a decent bit of. I mean, th- I thought this was a actually good idea. Yeah, it's fairly clever, and I, I don't see why they don't do that more in the future, with uh, pretending to be. Oh, Yerks. Spoiler, Nate. Disappoint. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Shit, well, there there's might be. There's plenty of instances in other books where they uh, they pretend to be controllers around other controllers and some sometimes pull it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it happens. Yeah. So uh, after they you know are able to trick this, uh, it's just them floating around inside of their ship with no oxygen, dying slowly. Uh, yeah, yeah, and Elfingor and uh, Lauren definitely have to. 
work together here to sort of close the the opening in the ship and to return the oxygen and everything. But quite obviously, that's all going to work out for them. There's not and enough. This is oxy- where we've got. Uh, right. uh-huh. I was going to say there's not enough oxygen. Once they close the doors, there's no onboard oxygen system anymore. And the only thing they have are uh, the visitor uses the knowledge of his host body to know where these emergency oxygen uh, containers are. But they only got like five minutes in each. Right. And in in Lauren's case, uh, it's... It's not the right mix of uh, chemicals. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tailored to Andalite's mm-hmm. biology. So she's not even breathing the right stuff, technically. And so the only thing they can do, according to the visitor, uh, is work together to use the time matrix... Uh, to get out of this situation. There's no other ship to attach to. The Andalite Dome ship's, you know, like 300,000 miles away, even though you, they can see it, but it has no power. They they have no other way out of the scenario except what the visitor's telling them. But none of them even know how to use the time matrix, so they all could have died here pretty easily. <laughs> no, it's it's the classic gotta team up with my arch nemesis plot line. Actually, considering how the Yerks have been described thus far, I thought this was kind of cool that they have to work mm-hmm. together um, because so far the Yerks are only described as extremely evil and terrible and, and the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, for survival's sake, they need to work together. I, just, I don't know. I just thought that was neat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, is, it is showing a little more what we learn. What we learn in other books is that, uh, like I mentioned earlier, like the Yerks super pragmatic. Like, they, they will not... You know they'll team up with their worst enemy if it means they'll survive. They're very cowardice, and uh, they have they have other layers than just being super evil villains. Um, so yeah, which is great. Yeah, because I, point. and earlier I made the the comparison to a Dalek, but there's they seem to be so much more than that. Hey, Daleks have teamed up with the Doctor before. Yeah, and Daleks are <laughs> dumb. Yeah, I don't like Daleks. <laughs> not not a favorite villain. You're more of a Cyberman. Man. I'm more of a silence kind of guy. Whoa. Oh, the new, the yeah. new who. Yeah, the new who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The silence to me is is by far the scariest Doctor Who uh, villain. Yeah, that's not cool. not the topic though. So let's. I well no, no, no. <laughs> you bring it up. I'm at least gonna throw it out there that I think the Time Lords themselves are the scariest villain in Doctor Ooh, Who. Ooh, but that's just me. Touche. <sighs> I don't know. The Slovene Slovene are pretty <laughs> terrifying. No, what are the, what are the um, oh gosh, the the name is on the tip of my tongue. The little uh, fat monsters made of fat. Oh, the, the lampros or uh, Adipose. Adipose. The best. Those are just adorable. <laughs> Adip- oh my own little. They're like little Stay Puft Marshmallow Men. Yeah, and you get thinner when they kill you. So that's nice. Hooray! Everybody wins. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Anyway. So after uh, after managing to come together and work out their differences and and uh, not not try to kill each other for a little bit, um, Elfingor and the Vizzer work together and secure the time matrix. And then this begins this whole power struggle of who can figure out how to use it first. And they all they're both competing. Yeah, and you know this is a Wizard of Oz moment where they're all like. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. But you've got three minds controlling this machine created by a god, and through you know however it works, they they don't go, they don't even try to touch on how this thing works without in the rest of the series or this book or anything. But no, it's it's too complicated. We don't need to worry about. Yeah, but so you have these three individuals (laughs) trying to control it, saying basically, "I want to go home," and you hear a little chuckle 
a little universal chuckle um, from what assuming is, you know, the people who created the Stein Matrix. And they're transported individually somewhere else. I don't even want to try to describe where it is. <laughs> right. Well, it's basically a mishmash of dimensions here. It's kind of a... Well, well you'll, you'll find out. They basically <laughs> create, like, a pocket universe, for using a term that our listener loves. Um, <laughs> right. They, they create a, a alternate pocket universe that shouldn't exist, but they force it into being. Yeah, Elfengor, again, when you need to advance the plot, make him, make him, uh, well, knock him out, because he wakes up in a uh, <laughs> yeah. place that kind of resembles the Andalite home world, where, you know, he's got his little scoop home, and for well, some it, reason he thinks his parents will be there. At first he thinks it is the Andalite home world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it very much is his home world. Until he realizes that, you know, there are parts of Earth and the Yurk homeworld mixed in there as well. And it's all really patchy and just, uh, it, it clearly does not look right. It's a now, bizarre melding of the three worlds. I do want to stop oh, us briefly. World. We're not going to talk about Doctor Who, but I do want to go to Nate and see, okay, again, you hear so many sci-fi concepts thrown at you throughout this book. Now we've created yeah. a pocket universe made of three different worlds, and this is where we are in the plot now. What's your first reaction reading this? Uh, I'm digging it. I think it's really, uh, really kind of a cool setup for this, uh, because, well, it's it's it makes sense that they each person, not person, each being controlling the time matrix would want to go to their respective home, and I think it's so cool that the time matrix gives them what they ask for to the best of its abilities, um, and creates this combination bizarro world that uh that it tries to mimic bizarro their homes <laughs> uh i don't know i thought it was really neat i thought it was cool that it's um it's not just like oh the uh the yurk zone is over here the earth zone is over here and the andalite homeworld zone is over here they're all intermingled. And... Yeah, they start yeah, it's almost mixing. it's almost like a painting where they're yeah. just kind of blotchy and mixed in. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, that is is a very interesting concept. I'll I'll definitely give him that. Um Right. And after wandering around for long enough in his uh his this strange little world, he uh meets up with Lauren again and she's obviously in her section, her earth section of the world. And uh after, you know, a nice Reunion for the two of them. They happen to run into Visor 32 again. And he has with him the strangest sounding aliens uh, I think I've, I've, I've heard about. <laughs> what are your opinions here they, on the, the wheel aliens? I mean, yeah, they have, they have biological wheels, which is... It's just saying that it's a cool concept. And it's, it's just... it's I think it's almost too hard to picture. Because... Th- Going into the, like their joints, I don't know. I couldn't even. I, I pride myself, you know, being into the film industry and and writing scripts and doing this. I pride myself in being able to visualize live action scenarios and how you would film something. I have no idea how I would picture this thing on like on film. I have no idea how it would work. I don't even know what it'd look like. I don't know how it would play. And so, bravo to them for blowing my mind. <laughs> so I I agree with you actually. Um... However, it did not blow my mind. It actually started to lose me a little bit. Um, 
because a biological wheel is I can't conceive how that would work. Yeah. I'm <laughs> um, I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> I I have something to say here that I don't think either of you will have been aware of. Um so even though these aliens are described as having like four wheels, um which is kind of a weird a weird alien design. Um it's not all that weird because I wonder if this might just be a reference or a throwback to another book um by Philip Pullman and it's in the uh his Dark Materials trilogy. You probably have heard of The Golden Compass, that's the first book in the series. Mm-hmm. Well, in the third book of the series, The Amber Spyglass, a large chunk of that plot has to deal with a character who finds herself on an alien world, surrounded by these alien creatures that are very similar to this description, where they have not biological wheels, but they have a a biology set up so that they can use these uh, seed-like pods as wheels Mm. for themselves. And their whole culture revolves around this weird uh, obsession with these seeds, and I just wondered if somehow, some way out there, uh, Applegate was making a reference to uh, but, his dark materials. But even if it's like <laughs> a really clever reference to uh, some other book that did it really well, it still doesn't really change our main problem with it. Um, in the fact that you, it's just—it's almost too hard to conceive of how this would work, like a joint system with these wheels. And even if it did work, it definitely wouldn't work as fast as these things move. I mean, they're moving no, like, no, no, like they don't, ATVs. They don't, they don't move fast, though. She specifically mentions how they they look like they might be fast, but they're actually quite Well, slow. no, they kind of ramp up, and they're like charging speed. Yeah. yeah, she says once they get going, but they started out slow. That's what I'm saying. I think they'd be like <sighs> these hobbled, handicapped creatures, like moving, you know, like barely being able to go like five miles an hour. Well, that's not even the worst problem, is that these things are so overpowered in that even though Elfengor, you know, slashes at him with his tail, um, they have the odd Hydra ability (laughs) of being able to regenerate into completely new uh, uh, creatures. And don't forget the part where they split apart, too. Yeah, oh, oh, yes. And then to make things even weirder, not only do they split and, you know, divide, they also divide uh amongst themselves into two other creatures one of which has wings so it's like these are really really weirdly overpowered aliens yeah i'll give them that yeah. they're super original i just <laughs> they're just almost too original like we don't get it yeah i i totally agree with you coleman um too original is kind of a good way to put it well yeah it seems like you know okay we've got humans well what if also their arms opened up and they shot rockets out of them oh cool well what if you know their legs were also jets it's like yeah but i can i can conceive that like you could implant stuff into their arms or um some i don't know also mitch you just totally described two of Visitor Three's morphs in other parts of the series. So, <laughs> is it, what is he? Does he morph into Astro Boy later? No, remember in the uh, at one point in the David trilogy, he turns into that giant creature that has like uh, safety cones for arms, but it shoots them like missiles. <laughs> oh, no, dude, I don't remember that. But uh, Applegate must have been playing uh, Shattered Realities a little too much. <laughs> Applegate was high throughout half the. Uh, morphine, morphine alien creature creation. I was, I was kind of wondering that. <laughs> yeah. Well, regardless, um, this is a crappy situation to be in, 
and uh, a crappy situation to read about, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Elfingor and Lauren decide, F it, we're just going to escape. And so they run away to Lauren's house. And there's a whole scene there with Lauren's mom, who acts like it's totally normal that she's hanging out with an Andalite. And, this is pretty funny. Um, this is another moment of... Uh, I mean, it's it's frightening if you take it from Lauren's perspective, but it's also yeah, pretty funny that terrifying. Axe... Or not Axe, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that... Uh, um, Axe's brother. Axe's brother, Elfangor. It's funny that he uh, continues the conversation with the mom, and it's almost like he's just, you know, like, yep, I'll just... Hey, he's boy. being nice and... All right, yeah. Manners and <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good little scene, and um, this is where you know Lauren's having a lot of difficulty dealing with this situation, and they decide maybe to get out of her house, and they uh, t- take a trip to McDonald's of all places, <laughs> and uh, as they're they're eating there, um, this is where Elfengor kind of realizes that the time matrix would probably be. In the center of this spiral galaxy, yeah, the, it turns the, into Gurren Lagann here for a second. They've noticed they've, <laughs> as they've been walking around uh, this pocket universe or whatever they created, um, they've noticed that it does kind of have a pattern to it. And if you go all around it, it's kind of like this spiral that's coming to a point. So that's where Elfinger figures if the time matrix is anywhere, it's going to be in the middle. Right. So that becomes the uh, next. X on the map that they have to head towards. Also, a large part of this book, we talked about how much the Taxon world sucks. Uh, I think we can mention the fact that part of the spiral is the Yurkholm planet, and it sucks way more. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely so much so much so that they make a point to go around the Yurk segments, whereas like they're cutting through Andalite and, and uh, Earth segments of the world. But when they see a Yurk segment they're like nah f that man well and and there are oh sorry i was gonna say to be fair part of what they're cutting around is that weird slow tongue thing that comes out of the ground (laughs) yeah 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 there's definitely a zelda villain in there no i think i think uh k applegate mike grant were like deep into like starcraft uh while they were writing this book oh yeah because a lot of the yurk stuff is like like zergs Zergs. yeah um which suck and are disgusting and like kill a lot of people it seems like the your home planet would be a horrible place. Yeah. And, um, you know, as they're wandering through this uh, place and they're, they're getting closer to the center of the universe, um, they start to rapidly age, which I guess is uh, uh, a way to get them uh, out of the 13-year-old age range and quickly up into the 18 to 20-year-old age <laughs> range. Yeah. So that the love story makes sense. And Lauren <laughs> alludes to her having gone through some changes oh yeah yeah exactly changes <laughs> i wanted to point that out that she uh comes very close to describing in detail what her exact changes and then she's just like she's like oh never mind oh never mind you'll see them later <laughs> you'll see them in part three <laughs> wink wink um, um so yeah they're growing hair and elfingor's hooves are growing and lauren's fingernails look like that african dudes and i appreciate the thought put into this you can tell they were like just the idea that this the physics of this universe as you get closer to this time matrix which created it i mean obviously we can't even comprehend uh besides the fact that it's a plot driven story um the details of this universe and the time matrix and the Olympus and all of that so it's kind of an interesting concept and it's not it doesn't feel shoehorned in that as they're getting to the center of this time machine that's 
built this universe around them. They're they're distortions, like temporal distortions in time. The closer they get to it, I, I thought the whole concept of that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's kind of cool. They they uh, fight their way through this vortex where they're rapidly aging, and they make it to the the, the time um, matrix there as well. And as soon as they're inside it, it's like you know, all white. I guess well, it's like a big it's storm the that they head towards. Uh, like a big tornado or something, and once they get past uh, this barrier, they they enter it. Yeah. Yeah, and as soon as they do, of course, the visitor shows up with his uh, wheelie goons. Final and then there's showdown. Another, there's another kind of pseudo fight showdown here, where you even get Lauren chipping in. And could we call call it the final countdown? The final, the final <laughs> countdown. Yeah, kind of, I guess. Um, but, you know, everybody fights, and the Vizzer ends up just running away like a little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> really, he, he gives up pretty quickly. He doesn't do a whole lot. Yeah, his dogs suck. <laughs> They've got wheels. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wheels, not the best thing to bring to a fight. Yeah, come on now. You brought a wheel to a leg fight. <laughs> <laughs> not a good move. So Elfengor's telling Lauren, you know, to... Uh, to just take them back to Earth because take us, he, he he really can't go back to his people at this point. Take us to the place with the white cylinders that you put in your mouth and smile and be happy. Which we didn't even yeah. go into that subplot, but I think we're okay without it. Uh, no, <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, one of uh, Elfengor's great Earth memories is a picture he found of uh, somebody smoking cigarettes. Yeah, cigarette. I out. thought they were talking about marshmallows at first. <laughs> oh, really? I. You confused the cylinder? Yeah, I was like, oh, cylinders, they must be camping and eating marshmallows. I want to see that ad where they're just, like, sucking on marshmallows with a waterfall <laughs> behind them and smiling. <laughs> I did realize later that it it's, didn't really make sense and thought, oh, yeah, they must be smoking. Well, yeah, because she immediately says uh, something like, no, we're not going to put white cylinders in our mouth because smoking's bad for you. Oh, yeah, something that like must that. have been it. it there's a, there's a PSA hidden in there. It wasn't me figuring it out. It was them blatantly telling me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure as a kid, even with that blatant explaining, I didn't understand any of it um, when I was younger. So I was just like, Yeah, I think I remember being a little confused as, as to what that could be as well. So they're both at the Time Matrix. Elfangor is kind of done with space. He's kind of done with this being a sci-fi story. And uh, <laughs> right. he's like, just picture Earth. Let's just fuck it. Let's go. Earth. <laughs> uh, well, at this point, he realizes, you know, he can't go back. I mean, he's he's done so much that would offend his people. He created the first Andalite controller, and it was completely his fault. Um, and he got away, you know, Visitor 32. He's already been promoted. The Yurks already know about it. Stories are probably spreading throughout the universe of the great, uh, the great Elfangor and, you know, ruining everything yeah so yeah, obviously he's gonna be like all right lauren i'm 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 with you i'm just gonna go to earth now and blend in so he has her kind of picture a, a time right after she was abducted so that they could return back to that point which this is kind of interesting the time matrix is so much more than just a time machine i mean it's obviously from this point them creating this universe or whatever you can tell that but it's time place space whatever you want machine it's a it's it's a it's a plot matrix hmm. i thought of it as the tardis it's the tardis on crack <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> kind of and with less of a personal connection i wonder if it's bigger on the inside it's actually bigger well, on the outside 
<laughs> no, that's that's pretty <laughs> unimpressive, I guess. Oh yeah, and then um, shoehorned in here is uh, the fact that Elfengor kind of explains away how they uh, should just keep their older bodies. Um, yeah. Because remember, their their bodies are still you know uh, rapidly yeah. aged. Um, and I thought if they're working with a time matrix, which can already do so much, why couldn't she just picture them I'll tell you back why. in their younger original bodies? I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> Elfinger liked what he saw. <laughs> He's like, you could go back, or, or you could change the memories of everyone you know, so that you can keep them tits. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I I just I thought that. I mean, as a kid, yeah. It oh, we need to rephrase like, okay, that. I'm not going to leave that in. Hold on, we need to rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, no, no, no. I think, I think, uh, you know, I actually don't have another explanation. That's totally the That's explanation. Okay. You don't need to go into detail on this. I was just going to say that okay. I thought, you know, with all the things that the Time Matrix could do, giving them their their original bodies, you know, Full Metal Alchemist style. Would not be too difficult a, a task for it to to do. Instead, they do this. Uh, no, we're gonna keep the older bodies and kind of rewrite time to make it all make sense. Just so that I thought it wouldn't be as creepy with having them, you know, go into this whole uh, marriage subplot. <laughs> yeah, but they could that could have easily been solved as well just by having them be on Earth longer. I mean, they could have gone back as teenagers. And then kind of grown up together. That kind of would have been a sweeter love story. Aww. Yeah, you know, it kind of would, except that they would have needed a lot more time to do that. It's a um, montage. That's properly. That's two pages. But I, 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 okay, I get your point. <laughs> because we get a time skip here of three years um, of, uh, you know, Elfengor living on Earth and blending in with human society and staying in human morph and. All of this stuff, I just can't help feeling that I want that in book form. <laughs> That's what's interesting to me. But you here want we're... the like day to day story of that three years. Yeah, yeah. Because um, when the other Andalite characters come into the main series, their their attempts at blending in with human society is always a really funny it's point hilarious. of the story. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, just to have a whole book on Elfengor, like actually blending in and trying to become human, and I mean, I'm sure there's a, a fanfic out there somewhere of it. I, I don't want to. He or go ahead, Nate. Okay, he uh, he does recap that time a little bit. Yeah, oh, I know. And I just want more detail. <laughs> I th I actually thought uh, with that recap, it is it okay to go here, Cole? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I thought with the recap that he kind of almost saw himself as better than humans oh which, yeah they which, do which uh was insulting to me as a human <laughs> like i i really would have liked the if um if the perspective he took was oh humans are fascinating because of this and this and it's really weird that they do this i thought it was interesting that elvengor kind of takes this approach where he's kind of uh thinks himself thinks of himself as as better than humans and and far more knowledgeable and granted sure he is um, he talks, but he, like, I don't know, he kind of takes that high and mighty approach and talks about, um, how he understands all these advanced physics concepts that humans are just barely beginning to understand and, and how he talked to Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, and how he told them about all these computer interfaces and then they stole it and blah, blah, blah. I think a more interesting approach would have been to, um, 
have him observe humans and, and think, oh, it's interesting that they do this or that, or it's very peculiar that they do this or that, um, and kind of take a analytic approach rather than a, eh, I'm better than these guys. I'll kind of hint at some stuff, and they can take and do what they want with it. Well, to his credit, that's not just Elfengor. That is the entirety of the Andalite race. Whenever any Andalite comes to Earth, they're always pompous and high and mighty like that. Okay. And and for the most part, the uh, his brother character, Axe, who joins the cast, the main cast, his entire character arc is about him learning not to underestimate humans and learning oh. what humanity is all about and eventually blending in with humanity. Okay, yeah, I just thought it was interesting that that was his approach when he's trying to blend in. But, yeah. here's the thing. Um, I agree with Nate's frustration with this section because um, we've just seen this character. I'm sure he hasn't, you know, we haven't seen as much of it, but he's been living on Earth now. Uh, his entire experience with Lauren and Chapman, for the most part, is him looking down in this race, and then being continually surprised by them. So you would think some of that arrogance would edge off, especially once he started living with them proper on Earth. So it is it is frustrating that he goes straight back into Andalite mode uh, of being arrogant and, you know, that my race is better or whatever. Well, I think it's because he feels so vulnerable. Like he says, he doesn't have his stock eyes or his tail, which he really misses. And, uh, you know, he just feels cut off and very vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's a fair point. So obviously, you know, him and uh, him and uh, Lauren have shacked up over the three years and gotten married, and uh, because of the uh, age skip, that's not creepy. <laughs> and this is when uh, Elfengor is blending in on Earth. He mentions how he's, you know, taken a human name, Alan Fangor, Pat. or Al Fangor. Clever. I laughed. I giggled. I chuckled. <laughs> And uh, basically, you know, he's living life and it's all good. Um, as good as an Andalite trapped in human morph can be. But um, one day he comes home from work to just find this weird dude in his living room. And he knows kind of right away um, that it's an Alamist. Because it's not just an a dude. It's like a winged, floaty creature. Um, well, no, he looks normal at first. I thought it was... No, it looks like a human. Oh, okay, so he yeah. changes in Loon? Okay. I thought he's... Never mind. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they, they have a little chat, and um, the Elemist is able to convince Elfengord that he basically screwed everything up by doing what he did with the Time Matrix there, and by coming to Earth and, you know, taking himself out of the fight against the Yerks. And that he really needs to repair this damage done to the timeline by sending Elfengor back to the point where he should be. So basically, the, the Elemis comes in and offers to fix things. And now, this is something I wanted to know. Uh, if this is a plot point that you saw coming, in particular, Nate, um, or if you were disappointed at all by this, of the uh, sudden appearance of a godlike character who can well, set everything right. What, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I... I was kind of under the understanding that um, the Elemists were this previous race, that they were very advanced and very powerful, but they were no longer around. I didn't really think of them as a um, higher dimensional being that they are. Um, so 
when we got to this part of the book and I, I understood what the elements are, I actually thought it was really interesting that um, a higher dimensional being would feel the need to start poking around in lower dimensions. Um, Have we got and... a book series for you then? <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, I think it was really kind of neat because they, they go on to talk a while and I believe Elfing, it's Elfengore that says, is this just a, are we just a game to you? And the Elemis says, yeah, basically. Oh, yeah. He's he's not even subtle about that. Um, I was like, oh, straight right, well, him. we're the pawns of gods. Cool. <laughs> basically. <laughs> and, well, see, yeah, and um, there are some issues with the series proper, uh, with deus ex machinas, especially when you start bringing in these godlike beings. Uh, I think this is less of a deus ex machina than a lot of the other ones because this doesn't fix anything. This ruins the main character's life. Um, <laughs> right, and it leads to his death, ultimately. Yeah. And you know what? I agree with you there. I didn't have as big a problem with this deus ex machina ending as I as I think I would have or, or that I used to. Mm-hmm. It made a lot more sense this time. Yeah, around. and it's it's incredibly sad, too. And, and the, just the the fact that, you know, Elfengor's like, okay, so if I do this, does that mean we win? And the Elmas can't even give him that. Eh, He's like, well, might do okay. if we do this, that means you have a shot at maybe winning. If I feel like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I get off the couch and stop watching Planet Earth HD. Yeah. What I did think was interesting about the Elmist is that he reiterates several times that, oh yeah, we don't we don't get involved. <laughs> well, clearly you do. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You can't say uh, one thing and then do the exact opposite, LMS. That's called a, hip- a hypocrite. Yeah. You're and I mean, this is why the Elimus is so such a good character. Basically, Nate, for background, not a huge background, but I'm saying uh, the Elimus and another godlike being who's, you know, the dark side of this um is woven throughout the series it's not it's not always like huge turning events or anything but usually it's um there's always some big question or some ethical dilemma and the Olympus comes in and gives them a choice to do something and uh it's always like this you know you can tell that the Olympus and this other character are playing just a big chess game with the universe and um to further give you background Within this Chronicle series, you know, this is the Andalite Chronicles, there's a whole book that's the Olympus Chronicles. And it's it's the Olympus is the protagonist. And it's my favorite book in the entire series. I think that would be really interesting. It's, it's, it's incredible. We won't be reading it until almost the very end of our podcast. Probably pretty close to like... A, it's it's going to be one of the, uh, I think, maybe the second to the last. At the pace we're not... going, it's probably going to be like a year from now when we read it. Oh, jeez. Yeah. We'll see. But yeah, that should be maybe our second to the last episode. I don't know. Ah, uh, such an incredible um, book, though. Yeah, and, and I mean, the Elemis clearly has the power to do whatever the hell he wants because he is able to make Elfengor an Andalite again. He puts him back on the Andalite dome ship, you know. He and... puts him in a fighter. <laughs> I have here that he puts him back on the bridge of the dome ship that is under attack. He He hops into a fighter. But he he puts him back oh. on the on the bridge of the dome ship, and that's where he, um, I think he has a a little run in with uh, maybe his old captain or something who's kind of confused, you know. Obviously, since I thought, he's that was been over, I thought he was on the fighter, and that was over radio or something. Oh, or over thought speak. 
Okay. Yeah, I think he puts him in a fighter, and then he shows he thought speak radio is the dome ship, and he's like, "I'm here now," and they're like, "Oh and shit, like, what? help us!" Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're here. What are you gonna but do? But this is basically the the Olympus transports him into a fighter and puts him in the middle of some random battle where he definitely shouldn't be. This is years after. This is still years after uh, when he left the universe to go live on Earth. So yeah, but. Uh, as he's, you know, zooming around space trying not to die. Um, who Who shows up but the newly appointed Visor 3, who's just like, Oh, Alfangor, I remember that dude, I hated him. And they proceed to they proceed to have a snarky little conversation. Yeah, and for... Which ends mm. with, I thought this was pretty cool, I never realized this, never thought about this, but it ends with Alfangor deciding to ram the blade ship very important to fans of the uh, book series, especially if you've read the entire book series. Um, <laughs> Nate's nodding amazing. along like he like he thinks oh, he should get it. I didn't know there was it, significance he... here. I, no, I just I don't know. I thought it was cool. The yeah. the term specifically ram the ram blade, the ship. blade ship is uh, uh, every time anyone says that the shit goes down. <laughs> yeah, know about. I see. Um, so this is kind of where, yeah, he's you know he's crippled the blade ship, but he's also crippled himself, and he's uh, he he manages to survive, and somehow they don't really go into detail how he survives this whole incident, but he does and is made a hero by the Andalites super quick, and this is where he admits to his captain basically everything that happened to him. Except for the location of the Time Matrix, which he deems... Can Elfinger go two seconds without creating a Herectolust? I mean, seriously, he's just dying to tell everybody all his faults. It's like, dude, get a My Journal or something. Uh... <laughs> well, it's, it's nice that she, uh, Applegate, at least says that, um, you know, now that he doesn't have Lauren to share yeah. his experiences with anymore, he's like, I gotta tell somebody. So, yeah, he unloads everything on this, this Andalite captain. And um, the captain is like, okay, cool, yeah. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover all that up so that uh, our, our Andalite race can have our perfect hero. And uh, Elfengor just kind of, you know, is shuffled back into the rank and file of the Andalite military where he's this uh, big hero. Yeah, to his credit, I mean, he becomes a hero uh, without... I mean, he, he does do some brave things with ramming the blade ship and he becomes a prince um but to his credit after that he becomes a real hero he's actually like one of the greatest fighters in the universe um so he's it, it insinuates that throughout the war that follows in this little montage section that he goes on to win tons of battles and uh, command dome ships and do tons of stuff yeah so. yeah he, he definitely becomes kind of a seasoned pro in a fairly short amount of time um i think he mentioned that he didn't even know his brother was born yet at, at one point in the story yeah um so yeah he, he must be a little bit older well anyway um so he obviously goes back to the to the the battlefield that is kind of earth Battlefield Earth <laughs> to find his his dome ship is outnumbered. And yeah, and he's got Aximili hanging out in the dome. Uh, he's brought his little brother to war to be an Arist himself. Um, yeah. and that's a side note. That's not brought on, but well, no, he does not, talk not about when when the dome ship's overpowered, the blade ship shows up, outnumbered. They weren't expecting like he was going to Earth basically to check on it, right? Um, 
and they had no idea the Yerks were actually there in force. Yeah, and this is technically um, the prologue of the Alien, kind of. Yeah. But from Elfengor's yeah. perspective. Book number eight, the Alien. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you, so, yeah, we see more of that. He, he is outnumbered. The dome ship's destroyed. He takes a fighter down. Uh, he's it's the whole, he's mortally it's the whole wounded. beginning of the series. We've, yeah. we've basically seen this scene in the prologue. This is where he's crashing on Earth looking for the time matrix. He remembers burying it in this uh, forest on Earth, which when he goes back there now, he's discovered that, oh crap, it's a construction site, a, a happening construction site, and there's no possible way he's going to be able to find the time matrix in time. Let alone dig it up. and. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't have the strength to do anything useful anymore, but he does happen to meet a group of humans. And which... I want to I stop you here. Uh, something we kind of glossed over, what was incredibly sad about the choice he makes with the Elimus is as he's leaving, he's already said yes to the Elimus. He's, he's oh, veering yeah, off at a yeah. time. He finds out Lauren had, she'd been going to the doctor because something was wrong with her and she thought she was sick, but she was actually pregnant with his half-human, half-andalite child. Well, it's it's technically It's, totally it's, it's half-andalite in the fact that he is an andalite. I mean, he's it's in It's andalite in soul. Point is, uh, it's got some andalite DNA just because he's, morphine doesn't change your core who you are. It just changes your structure, so. Yeah, okay, point point is, um, yeah, we, we glossed over that, and um, it is quite, quite important yeah. to the plot that uh, Lauren was pregnant with with Elfengor's child. And how screwed up is the Elimist that, you know, he said he was going to change Lauren's memories and stuff, but he gave her some crap memories. Like, he made her, like, a dysfunctional human who's married to somebody else, and he didn't really fix her because she constantly felt like she lost something um, in, right, in yeah, Elfengor. <laughs> well, we don't I... see any more of Lauren in, throughout the story, do we? No, it just it mentions briefly that she... When he's talking to, when he meets the group of humans in the construction site, obviously the Animorphs, uh, and his son, Tobias, which that's a huge reveal. Oh, yeah, this. yeah, I was not expecting that. Yeah, huge reveal. So, oh, go ahead, Nate. I wanted to comment on Lauren real quick. Um, what I took that as, with Lauren being broken, basically, for the rest of her life, is one of two things. Either that the Elemis just didn't care. <laughs> um. But more optimistically, at least in my opinion, that they aren't perfect and they they aren't necessarily all powerful. Granted, I'm taking I'm saying that as someone that hasn't read any of the other books in the series. Yeah. Um But um that's kinda what I thought, okay, well maybe maybe they can't take care of every tiny little detail and, and make uh, a perfect fake memory or you know whatever or you could say that the Olympus is all-powerful but the power of love is something the Olympus can't beat and that's Ooh. the power of love and and her her love for elfanger was more powerful than god himself boom so he's not all-powerful because he can't overcome the power of love look if the Olympus creates a rock that's too big for him to carry <laughs> um, anyway so okay so here's what i want to know so this ending part with the reveal of tobias and the animorphs and he's dying uh the visitor three comes to kill him or whatever uh did you get anything out of this ending right here uh nate since you don't 
know the Animorphs or care about them yet. Well, I guess to what degree do you mean? Well, I mean, like, Did it you... is a huge, huge reveal in the series that Tobias, a main character who has an incredibly sad story, that Elfanger, the guy who gave them the power to morph, is his father. That was a oh, huge reveal. Yeah, so that that wasn't... I mean, basically, here's here's the timeline for me. Elfengor, you've got a son that I'm not going to let you meet. Maw. And then he crashes, meets five humans, and I thought, I bet one of those is his son. Oh, that's kind of... And sure enough, <laughs> yeah, it was. I guess that's kind that of poignant on its own. <laughs> well, and I think it's cool that he mentions that he sees, like, all their timelines... And, you know, he sees the five humans and he sees his brother's timeline intersect with them. So he kind of, it's almost like uh, like uh, the DBZ special, the Bardock, father of Goku, where <laughs> yeah. he gets the ability to kind of see in the future. And, you know, he knows Goku's going to beat Frieza, so everything's kind of cool. Well, so the, the book ends on kind of a, a happier note where he dies, but he's still able to give the humans the morphing power and he is hopeful that... His son is going to continue on the fight I, against. The I Earth. do like that it ends, like the whole book. Uh, Nate doesn't know this, obviously, but throughout the entire book series up to this point, so uh, thirteen books, we've only known Elfanger as this uh, hero who bravely gave humans a way to fight against this unstoppable force. So this book does two things really well. I'm not trying to get my review here, but it does two things really well in the sense that it. Um, it shows us that he was an incredibly flawed, uh, for lack of a better term, human being, uh, who nah. you know he wasn't he wasn't really human. I'm just saying that he he was flawed. He wasn't a perfect prince. But by the end of the story, you haven't changed your real opinion of him because even though he sees himself as doing all these terrible things, he was an incredible hero who bravely looked into death while he gave his son the power to keep fighting and and look down his mortal enemy and like he was everything we already thought he was we he just re revealed more of uh his backstory right. well Elfanger has basically had like three different lives yeah i mean he, he had his life you know before choosing to become a human and then becoming a human and then going back and being a andalite hero yeah so he's the king of do-overs i guess yep and that's that's the book that's it yeah, that is the book in its entirety, and it's a doozy. We're uh, we're sitting at about three hours right now. So so yeah, that's the book. Uh, let's jump straight into the views. We're we're pushing the time limits on this. We're we're almost becoming Nothlets at this point. It's a long episode. This is our Hirek Dallast, actually. Pretty much. Wondering which roller coaster has the highest top speed, or what exhibit is our guide's favorite in the park? Just ask them. They love to share their opinions and critical analysis to help you better plan your day. So, <laughs> jumping straight into the views, we're going to give it to Nate first. Guest guest host, we're going to force him to go first. So, big guest honors. <laughs> Don't let us down. We want to know we want to know what a non-fan thinks of this book. All right, well, well, thank you for the lead-off, guys. Um, so, I want to start my review by saying that uh, I did never get into the series as a kid. I honestly didn't know much about it. I, but even with that, I didn't think I'd like it. Uh, as a kid, I wasn't much of a reader. I'm still not too much of a reader. Um, but looking back, I think that uh, having read this, I think I would have liked it when I was younger. Um, 
using that language, that doesn't mean that I don't like it now. I just, I don't have the nostalgia associated with it um, that you guys have, which um, I think is a really big driving force for you guys in, in being able to reread it and go back through these and, and talk about it and um, have a podcast of it. Um, so for me, I'm, I actually came up with two ratings and I, I don't know if that's, that's okay. Illegal. <laughs> I came up with, with a rating, um, with me as an adult and with a retrospective rating that I think I would have given it had I either been into this as a kid or rated it, reading it as a kid. So my, my adult rating was a low to mid three, um, out of five, it uh, it's got some really interesting story points to it. It has some uh, ethical dilemmas, such as when uh, Elfengor is deciding, well, should I? Is it okay that we dump the Yurks? And he he decides no. Ultimately, um, just as one example. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. But at the end of the day, it's I don't know if it's enough to really fully engage me at this point. Um, however, I would say, had I had read this as a kid, um, and was able to look back on it, I think I would really be in the, um, solid four range, um, out of five, which I think is a pretty good rating. I think a perfect five out of five is almost unattainable. So four to five is saying a lot. And, uh, yeah, I kinda, I kinda feel like I missed out. <laughs> you certainly did. I can't believe you went to your scholastic book fair and passed up on this beautiful cover. <laughs> so, so hold on. Three slash four out of five what? Oh, um, Andalites? Ooh. Classic. Classic. <laughs> yeah. I thought it fitting being the Andalite Chronicles. <laughs> yeah, right. um, okay, I want to go, go next. Uh, I'm going to go next. So, I think, I think that score of yours is... Um, is given based on two things. I think I agree with you completely. You don't have the nostalgia factor. Uh, you are kind of just reacting to this random story. And um, I think I, I stand by your point of, of giving it a, a review score for if you had read it when you were younger versus now. I also think, though, uh, if you take the nostalgia away, you could also give it a score based on uh, if you were aware of the rest of the series. Because that is a pretty exciting part of this book, is thinking you know this character and being wrong. And also having that lead up to that first book, which the first book, uh, I think we both give it five out of fives because it's a very, very well-written book. At least the first book to lead into the series is incredible. Um, so to have this heading towards that, uh, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty good. And that, I think that does add a lot. So it does stand alone on its own, uh, but without that, I can, I can definitely see... Um, why you would feel like you're missing something almost. But now to go to my review. Um, yeah, get to I'm it. Get to it. So this book is one I've ne I've read all the Chronicles, you know, obviously. Uh, this isn't my favorite Chronicles book. Uh, it's got a ton of interesting stuff, and I, I really enjoyed reading it, obviously, and I am a fan of the series, so I love seeing how it leads into that first book, especially with that prologue and epilogue. Um, but I think the biggest problem with this book is it shows us glimpses of so much we want to read about. I want to read about Aris Andalites training to become warriors. I want to read about the prince class system within the Andalite military. I want to read about, um, 
you know, different planets like the Taxon home planet, kind of, but I don't want to spend like half the book there. And um, while I love the Olympus, I love all the Olympus stuff. I thought that completely overpowered this book. And like Mitch, you pointed out, um, once we're on Earth, I want to read Elfanger on Earth, trying to get over the fact that he's left his entire race behind and he's given up on the fight. And he's just living on Earth as a human in this. He's trying to be happy and have a family with an alien race. And that is so incredibly interesting. And I want that book. And we don't get it. We get a montage that leads us away from that. Um, and so that's what that's what I think is the biggest sin of this book. As interesting and as enjoyable as to read, the biggest sin of this book is introducing amazing concepts and then running as fast away as it could, or as running and then running as fast as it can away from those concepts. And you're just like, no, 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 stay there. Ah, oh, now we're in this, you know, crazy, uh, Elimus created time matrix world that I don't really care about. I mean, it's a cool concept, but like way too much time there and. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just this book kept leading me in places I wanted to go, and then punching me in the face and running away. Um, so it it's really frustrating to read, especially as a fan of the series and all the universe and stuff. Um, so it's still not my favorite Chronicles book. That said, it is incredibly important, and the Tobias reveal cannot be understated. It's amazing. Um, but I'm I think I'm going to agree, even with my nostalgia and with my knowing the rest of the series. I'm going to agree with Nate's original score of a three out of five, three out of five time matrices. Um, that is, Oh, my you score. son of a bitch. You took, my I know <laughs> I was going to use the time matrix. Yeah. So three out of five, that, that might be surprising to people, but, um, when I'm actively yelling at the book in front of me with no one else around me, uh, because it's, it's not doing what I want it to, uh, I can't give it a, a four even. You can't even. Well, I agree with some of the things you say, but I have to find fault with uh, with a lot of your nitpicks. Um, while I agree that this book introduces so many awesome concepts, um, I believe we are given the accurate amount of information we need to kind of glimpse these different cultures and these different races. And it all works out. Um, the thing you got to remember, though, is that this is Elfengor's story. It's it's a story about Elfengor, and that's primarily what it is. You're you're worried or you're uh, disappointed that it doesn't give you all this other information that you wanted, but really it's just here to tell us Elfengor's story and uh, and prepare us for how this feeds into the actual series. Um, where I agree with you is that yeah. There's so much more of this that I wanted. This should have been its own series. It should have been a prequel series of, you know, a couple books. Um, and, and longer than just these three-part things that they stitch into one book. Um, him adjusting to life as a human could have easily been its own book. Um, as well as, you know, other key things like him rising through the... the ranks of the Andalite army and all that. It's all very interesting stuff that we would love to see more of, but overall, we can have it fed to us in these little blurbs and these little summaries because it works. It tells the story of Elfengor and it gets us to where we need to be. The point where he's dying and giving his, you know, final will and testament, basically. So, um, I don't think it's really a secret that I just, I love this book. This was the book that introduced 
the idea that there could be such things as prequels and you know spin-off series and all that um so i i was incredibly excited for this when it first came out um it did not disappoint me back then Rereading it as an adult, uh, there were a couple points that I noticed that tended to drag on a little bit, like you mentioned, that uh, final stretch where they're in the, the weird Time Matrix blend world um, lasted a little longer than I would have liked. Um, I think they could have given maybe a little bit more stuff of uh, Elfengor on Earth in exchange for some of that weirdness that happened there, and I'd have been just fine with it. But other than that, the story really doesn't disappoint, and yeah, sets up uh, Tobias being related to Elfingor, which makes Axe, uh, Tobias's uncle, by the way. Yeah. It really gives their relationship an entirely different, uh, feel knowing that context. And it's weird because I don't even think either of those characters know that they have that relationship. For a long time. But, they figure it out eventually. Okay. But the readers, we know now, and it's just, it's, it's, I don't know, it makes it more special because they've already got kind of a deep friendship connection and now it just makes more sense but anyway uh i love the book and while i see that it has some flaws they aren't enough to make me dislike the book in any way or have any sort of uh complaints other than yeah it, it might have dragged on in a couple points and uh, a lot of it seemed to be based on you know coincidences of them going from one bad situation to another but in a science fiction adventure written for, you know, young adults or children, it's to be expected. It, it totally worked out, and it did not disappoint me at any point. So I'm going to end up giving it a final score of four out of five yellow Mustangs. Wow. Yeah. Well. Boom. Were you expecting that, or did you think I was going to go full board five? I think if you would have gone first, you would have gone to five. <laughs> no, 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 no. Influence. I no, absolutely not. I was going to do the the very stereotypical. Oh, I love it. Giving it five, it's perfect. But yeah, you know, rereading it and just talking about it just now, I realized there are a lot of things that do occur in this book that um, that were unnecessary. Hey, I, I such as the 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 keeping the uh, aged bodies. Yeah, and I think I think we had time. the same. We we pretty much had the uh, same opinion. Just that. You know, it's it's almost a it's not really a pacing problem, but it's a structure problem where it's like, um, they all the elements of the story I want are there. It's just a matter of how much time they spend on this versus this. I actually will agree with that. Um, one of the things as I was reading through this that I I I don't necessarily want to say that I thought was missing, but that I thought just kind of didn't seem quite right was exactly that. And you said it perfectly that it just seems to be kind of a almost a spin focus from from what you want to be reading versus what is being what you are reading so i appreciate that you you said that yeah i mean i never spun my focus <laughs> because i mean it's like like you point out in your view you kind of made it sound like um that i don't appreciate this version of elfanger's story but i this is the perfect elfanger story i'm perfectly fine with it uh it's just the parts that i i wanted to read were there they were just like in montage style and then we were you know driving the yellow mustang for 15 pages and you know things like that <laughs> that did last that scene did not last that i know long. i know I'm just it was saying. pretty long i'm just saying sometimes. it's just and, and a lot of the tax and homeworld stuff super rushed i mean it's just like and now civil war is happening like you said would have been perfect if this were like four or five books they could have focused on everything and it would have been crazy epic uh yeah but shoved into one book it's pretty crazy 
Well, and you also got to take into consideration that she was writing this thing in like over the span of a month or maybe two. Here, real quick, is this your favorite Chronicles book, though, Mitch? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Although I haven't read Hork Bajir Chronicles, and Visor's not really that wouldn't be considered a Chronicles book. Oh, it, it was. It's a separate. It's a separate book that focuses on a character who we don't who isn't a main protagonist in the normal series. Okay, well, I, I don't think I'd call that one of my favorites either. I would say Andalite Chronicles. Is I. Maybe if we reread... If uh, the Olympus Chronicles didn't exist... Well, I haven't read Hork Bajir Chronicles. I think I've read parts of it a long time ago. but So that's going to be a complete surprise, too. But um, if the Olympus Chronicles didn't exist, Vizzer would be one of my favorite books in the series. That's another one that's just just well done. <laughs> um, so that's basically it for the book and for our reviews. Um, we had uh, uh, some Reddit comments, um, some emails... I think what we're going to end up doing is saving them for next week. Um, this episode has already gone quite long enough, and I think we uh, feel like we're at a good place to end for the evening. Wouldn't you all agree? Yes. It's it's yeah. It's our longest episode yet, even if I edit half of it. Wow. So that should be a good one. <laughs> well, I uh, want to real quick uh, say thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this, and uh, thank you for giving me the gift of andalite chronicles and introducing me to the animorphs universe oh well speaking of which um we've got one last surprise for you oh we're giving you the power to morph i think I <laughs> yeah right no yes. I, was, I was going to say i hold in my hand the first book in the animorph series book oh one the invasion i want to know right here now i'm going to put you on the spot oh i want to know Will you task yourself to read this and come back on a later episode and give us your opinions? Considerably shorter than the uh, Andalite Chronicles. I think I think I could handle that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if if everybody that listens to this isn't like, oh my god, I don't want to hear more of that Nate guy. He's so <laughs> terrible. Um, if that's not the case, sure, I, w- I would come back and share my thoughts on it. Well, we've had an interesting time uh, picking the brain of somebody who hasn't read the main series, and it's so weird to do that in a situation where we can't even really talk about the main series. Yeah. Um, however, we think the, the first book holds up as truly one of the best books in the series, and an excellent beginning to a uh, sci-fi series. And I just want to say... Um... So what I was expecting when Nate was going to come on board, I was like, oh, sweet, I love, you know, love hanging out with Nate, he's a cool guy, I'm sure he'll add some funny comments or whatever, and uh, it'll make a good episode just having a third person on there. But I was actually really surprised that when you did, you know, when you when you were into a subject and we talked about it, uh, it was actually a third distinct opinion that wasn't just, you know, chiming in. It was actually something I hadn't thought of or Mitch hadn't thought of. And that's why me and Mitch think that this podcast works because we have pretty different views and we generally, you know, fight and argue about them. And, and we each generally say something that surprises the other person. I wasn't expecting another third piece of that to come in and bring something I hadn't thought about. So I was really you're happy. You're so smart. You're like you're like one of those AIs. <laughs> I was really I was yes. really happy with uh, how this episode turned out, and it surprised me myself. So I'm glad. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I could be a strong contributor. Next time, let's have Robert as a guest and see how it goes. <laughs> Wait, was I supposed to laugh at that, or did I just spend some? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it'll be a uh, wholly entertaining experience for everyone involved. Yeah, I think it'd be vastly more entertaining than me. <laughs> No, dude, I will say from our fans, 
from the people who listen to this podcast, they like us going more into tangents and talking about specific things in a really nerdy way, which is it's a bold claim. Yeah, well, I think so, and it's and that's uh, and you brought more of that to the table. So sweet. Glad so I can help out. just be nerdier, and uh, everything will work out in the end. You're right. welcome anytime, <laughs> sir. Not just for special Thank you. event books. So shall we point out the uh, fact that uh, next time we will be reading and reviewing Animorphs book number 14, correct? Yep, a Cassie book, right? Yeah, did, did, we, did neither of us look this up? Is it The Change? Or No, it's The Unknown, isn't it? I don't know, it's The Unknown. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I have no idea what it is. Uh, no, it's, it's book 14, yeah, book 14, it's 14. The Unknown, I believe. Mm-hmm. And this uh, book I am actually super excited to read because it is the first Animorphs book in the main continuity that I know for a fact I skipped over as a child. I took one look at that front cover of Cassie turning into a horse and was like, I don't think I need to read this one. I think I I read it, but I can't remember. And we are now getting into the Cassie books where I don't think we're going to be as harsh on her. She becomes a much more interesting character um, in these teen uh, books, the, you know, 11 through... 19 especially so hopefully the people who've been pissed off that we've just been shitting on cassie for the last 13 episodes um hopefully they'll turn around and start listening again <laughs> well i don't know i i have no idea if this book will do this i've never read maybe this we'll book, get so worse interesting. maybe we'll hate her even more <laughs> um <laughs> no i don't think so cassie becomes one of the best characters so yeah i think we can wrap it up i do want to give a shout out real quick before we go into the main uh ending at this point i'll have edited together Completely new intros and segues for the show. Uh, hopefully you like them and they're not too out there. I tried to be uh, fairly different than other podcasts with how we would have our show intros and segues and how they're direct influenced uh, from the books. So, you know, email us, shout us on Reddit what you think of them. But I can uh, definitely, I have to give credit to Beth Kohler, uh, who is a part of the Animorphs audiobook project. I believe she plays Rachel. Uh, she helped us out with the voice acting for the new intro and segues. So that is all credit to Beth Kohler. Um, thank you so much for doing that and for the, you know, just basically us giving her a shout out on the show, doing it for free. So at the time we were recording this, I haven't even heard the, the, the files yet. So should be interesting. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's it. So thanks for listening. You can find more ways to listen to the show by going to thoughtspeakcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Morphcast or like us on Facebook. Send us your thoughts on an upcoming episode by emailing us at thoughtspeakcast at gmail.com and we'll read it on the air. Except in an episode like this where we're too tired. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Finally, reviews on iTunes, especially for this episode. We just brought in a third guest, which we haven't done before. Um, I think a lot of podcasts are, you know, they range from two to five people. So this is our first, you know, bringing a third person. So we definitely, if you thought that was a good idea, Tell us on iTunes. Give us, you know, give us reviews or just chime in on Reddit, whatever you think. I specifically want to hear about what you think of just bringing in a third guest in general, because I'm sure we're going to try to bring in tons of people and hopefully Nate will grace us us with his presence again at some point. So, yeah. We'll make it happen one way or another. Yeah. Uh, We'll time down like Jake in the capture. And uh, I have ways of dealing with, with people like him. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to know yet. Anyway, so yeah, iTunes, jump on there, shoot us a review, uh, help out the show, get more people to listen to it. That's how you do it. So yeah, that's it. That's the show for this week. Hopefully you enjoyed this special event, Chronicles episode that's incredibly way too long. 
<laughs> but uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. So and join us next time for the book I've never read. All right, you guys want to do anything special? Sign off with three people, like shout at the same time and high five uh, in the we air. We could we could say the chronic what of Andalites. <laughs> We could do that. Or we could do the generic, <laughs> my name is, what? My name is, who? My name is. Elfinger Sornell. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> ticka, ticka. Elfinger Shady. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. No, no. Um, that That's it for, that's it for me. Well, that's it for our special event uh, episode. Join us next week as we get back into the normal stride of things. Uh, my name is Coleman. And my name is Mitchell. And I am Nate. Ooh, we said it! See you next time. On behalf of everyone here at the Gardens, we hope you've enjoyed your stay and welcome you to come and see us again soon. Or, as they say on the Serengeti, Tafadali Emtu, Kupata Jambo, Hilienje, Yakichua Yangyu. <laughs> <laughs>